Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. As you're turning, I want to share greetings from uh, Brother Jim Price. I talked to him, I believe it was Monday or Tuesday uh, this week. They were in Manitoba, and uh, he wanted to ask me to greet the folks here. He also, uh, because they've been so busy and on the road, hadn't had a chance, but and I think he sent a letter as well, but he asked me to thank the church for the, uh, the Christmas gift uh, that we sent. Said it was a great blessing and a help. Be praying for uh, Brother Jim as they uh, continue travels and raising support. And I wanted to share that greeting with you. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 10. I'm going to talk about four proofs of God's love. Four proofs. Now... There's a whole lot more than that. I was talking with Brother Colton uh, for a few moments this afternoon. We're talking about math. Uh, that's not a that's a weird Sunday afternoon discussion, mathematics. And we're talking about uh, calculus. That's an even weirder Sunday afternoon. Amen, Brother Maud. That's a weird afternoon discussion. And I was explaining a couple things and talking about proofs. And uh, I hated proofs. I hate proving anything in mathematics because when I did math, my brain isn't wired like everybody else's brain. Your brain works and my brain doesn't work. And uh, my circuits are wired all different. And uh, I can find the answer, but I don't follow the same path you, found, you followed to get it. And uh, I used to go back and forth with my math teacher over some of my proofs. Uh, and I would say, look, is my answer right or not? Yes, but you couldn't have got the answer the way you did it. I said, look, did I get the answer right or not? And we would go back and forth, and I, I probably should have been a little more uh, submissive to her. But uh, I, I didn't like showing proofs. God likes to show proofs. And by the way, he proves every day his love for you. His mercy is new every morning. Amen. Every morning when you see the sun come up, teenagers... Did you know that that thing, the, the, the bright thing up in the sky, it actually disappears at night and it comes back up early in the morning? Uh, it's not always in the sky, but when it comes up every morning, uh, it's a reminder that he rose from the dead, a reminder of his love for us. And we, we could look at hundreds and thousands of proofs tonight, but I just in this one little passage in Ephesians chapter 2, I want to take a few moments uh, just to enjoy uh, some time together in his word, uh, just to relish in what God's done. Uh, just to praise him, just to worship him tonight. Look with me here, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, for with he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Lord, my heart tonight, my desire is that we would worship you and glorify you this evening. Lord, you're worthy of our praise. Lord, we get a few glimpses into heaven you've given us in your word. 
Lord, John would have written much more if you would have allowed him, but the few glimpses that you allowed John to give us, Lord, it seems every time I see through the windows of heaven, I see worship and I see praise. And Lord, tonight I pray as you taught the disciples to pray, would you make it a little bit like heaven on earth tonight? God, would you help us to worship you a little bit tonight the way we will worship you forever in heaven. Lord, someday we will bow before the throne and cry out with the angels and cry out with the saints of God, worthy is the Lamb. But Lord, tonight you're already worthy. Lord, thank you for your great love for us. Help us tonight, Lord, to direct our worship and our praise to you as we look at these proofs of your love for us. Help me, Lord, to preach you right your truth. God, may you be glorified. In your precious name we pray. Amen. What would God have to do to prove his love for you? What would it take for us to say, I know, I know without a doubt that God loves me. And Would it take more money? Would it take better health? Would it take greater happiness in your life? More comfort? A better job? A bigger house? A newer car? What would it take? March 31st, 1995, I think it was. I think that's right, maybe 94. My wife will correct me later. That was my birthday. By the way, there's just a few shopping days left to my birthday. Be aware of that. <laughs> but my wife and I had been dating. We had our first date December 7th, maybe, or 8th. And then this is March 31st. It was a little over three and a half months later. I met her that day as I was going out to go to work. And she gave me a cupcake. It was a Otis Spunkmeyer, I think. Uh, chocolate, double chocolate, I think. Chocolate chip, chocolate cupcake. She had a candle on it. Uh, you know, she couldn't bake a cake in her room, so she bought a cupcake. And did you give me something else that day? I don't remember. I don't think so. She's a cheapskate. And uh, she gave me that cupcake <laughs> and as a birthday gift. And that day... As I was driving to work, as I got in my 1977 Ford Granada piece of garbage, and as I was going to work, me and my buddies, I looked over at the fellow who was my best friend in Bible college. His name's Jeremy. I talked to him just a couple weeks ago. It was his, it was his birthday, actually, a couple weeks ago. I looked over at him, and I said, Jeremy, I'm going to marry Carrie. I'm going to... I'm going to ask her to marry me at Christmas, and we're going to get married next summer. And he said, does she know this? I said, no, but I'm going to tell her. Now, when my wife heard that story later, she decided it must have been the cupcake. So, so girls, that's the secret. you got to give the cupcakes. But the cupcake had nothing to do with it. Too many times, all the little things that we think we want from God, they have nothing to do with God's love. 
But I want us to look tonight at some things that do have everything to do with the love of God. Everything God does, everything God does, he does for a specific purpose. He, he does nothing without cause. He does nothing without purpose. His efforts to mankind are always, if we look in the, the account of creation in Genesis, all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament, we see that God is always dealing with man to show man his love. Always. He, he, he loves us. He, he does nothing by chance. God does nothing in desperation. There's a wonderful old song, and part of that song goes, of you know, God searched through heaven looking for... God didn't search through heaven. I, I, I like the song. I, I understand the premise. Salvation was not a desperation move. God didn't have to scramble and back in the, the back. Oh, no, man, what am I going to do now? Man, sin. Where do I throw the ball? No, it was planned from eternity. It always was. God knew. So everything God does and everything God has ever done is for because he loves man. God never throws anybody away. For a little over a year now, God's put a burden on my heart. I'm going to have to do something about it pretty soon, but God's burdened me to, to do something that is pretty outside my normal wheelhouse. But I'm, I guess the Lord's going to, I'm either going to do it or God's going to kill me probably God's burdened me to write a book with that premise of don't throw them away we live in a culture today Christian culture where we give the gospel out and we try to reach people and so many churches if that person we reach is not the instant Christian that we think they ought to be if they don't look the way we think they ought to look and talk the way we think they ought to talk and do everything exactly the way we think they ought to in a couple of weeks, we want to toss them away and get started again. God doesn't do that. I love the story in the book of Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah went down to the potter's house and he looked through the window and watched the potter as he worked at the wheel and he watched as the potter broke the vessel. But he didn't throw the clay away. He simply started again. Christian, we need to understand the love of God, that God doesn't throw you away. He doesn't throw me away. He desires to use us and to mold us and to make us. Now, does that mean that we're, I'm going to be able to do everything God has wanted me to do? There are times that because of some brokenness that I can't be all that God had wanted would want for me but that doesn't mean God throws me away I love the picture there of Jeremiah as he looks in the potter's house we look at God's love so often through what happens to us daily we look at it as wow something good happened today God loves me 
Oh, man, today was a bad day. Brother Maude fell on the stairs. Boy, it's a bad day. God must not love me. I'm a little worried. My enemy is now attacking you. We have the same enemy, the stairs. We look at, oh, this is good. Okay, I have a good day. This is bad. I've got a good day. Most of you probably know this. My family knows this for sure. If anyone asks me how I'm doing, what do I say, Rebecca? How are you? I say, I'm beautiful. Exactly. No, I'm not beautiful. But I've learned not to gauge how I'm doing according to what's happening in my life. God loves me. When I fall down the stairs, he still loves me. When I, when I disobey him, he still loves me. We look for God's love in the things that happen to us. And we say, God, why are you doing that? We question God. God answers back many times, I believe. Not audibly, but he answers back because I love you. Because I love you. I want to take just a few moments tonight, and I, I don't think I'll be lengthy this evening, but I want to share four thoughts, four proofs of God's love, and then I want to shift gears just a little bit for just a couple very small points into the message. Number one, we find this proof in our text. We're going to be looking just in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. Would you look there with me? Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, for with he loved us even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace. Are you saved? Proof number one, he quickened me. He quickened me. He made me alive. When I met Brother Bonnie ten and a half years ago, is that right? Brother Bonnie was a dead man walking. He was dead. He was lost. He grew up with a religious past, but he was lost. He believed the Bible, but he was lost. He believed who Jesus was, but he was lost. But just a little over 10 years ago, God took a dead man and he made him alive. Your testimony tonight, Christian, if you are born again, child of God, is you were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. But he quickens you. When I was in grade 7, I came home from school one day. I walked down the hallway of our home, down the hallway past the bathroom, past the laundry in the hallway, and in my room was on the left, my sister's room, my room. I walked out of my room. When I walked out of my room to go back down the hallway, I looked, and there in the middle of the hallway was a tennis ball. Now I'm a hillbilly. I guarantee you there was no tennis racket, brother, within 100 miles of my house. There was not a tennis ball there because I played tennis. There was a tennis ball on my floor because I had a dog, Boston Terrier. And I looked down the hallway, through the living room, into the kitchen, and laying in the kitchen floor was my dog, stone cold asleep. How many have ever heard a Boston Terrier snore? They sound worse than Pastor Rice snoring, and I'm pretty bad. He was snoring. He was out of it. And in my little juvenile 
12-year-old brain. I hatched a plan. I thought, how cool would it be to line up that tennis ball, kick the tennis ball down the hallway, hit the dog, wake him up. I mean, that's, that sounds fun, doesn't it? So that's my plan. So no shoes on in the house. You know, I ran back to kick the tennis ball, and I kicked it about three inches before you got to the tennis ball on the ground. My big toe snapped in half. The bone broke, and the bone went through the toenail. Blood began to forcefully... Colton, you having, you having trouble yet? I know it's... He's, a, he's very visionary when he hears. Blood is spraying, and I began to scream. My loving mother, she's probably watching still, uh, she yelled at me to be quiet. She might have even said a, a real foul word like, shut up. I don't know what she said, but she's, what's wrong with you? Be quiet. What are you screaming about? My dad was on the roof of our house. He was working on fixing the roof on the back porch. My dad heard my scream through the roof. And he knew something was horribly wrong. My dad jumped off the roof. I don't mean he took the ladder. He jumped off the roof, came in the house, came in, and there I am. Blood squirting. They took me to the hospital. They had to kind of almost kind of set my toe a bit. And they had to cut the rest of the toenail off. And then they had to stitch because the bone went through the toe. They had to stitch the quick, what we call the, the meat underneath the nail. They had to put stitches across that. Now, there's a reason they call that quick. There, there's no doubt. There's some feeling there. And I remember that my dad holding me down, the nurses holding me down, and that was just to get the needle near me, Brother Maud. I hate needles. And they're stitching that quick. It's very much alive. You and I were dead, in Christ, dead without Christ. But he made us very much alive. How do I know God loves me? A lot of reasons, but I can look here in this passage and tell you tonight that God loves me because he quickened me. He made me alive. He gave me spiritual life. He's quickened us in Christ Jesus, the Bible says. Letter E there, he quickened us in Christ Jesus. It's an expression of his mercy and his love towards us. In verse 4, we were dead in sins. In verse 5, we were hell bound. Ephesians 2, 1 says, and you. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We've been made alive. I like the way Matthew Henry says it. Matthew Henry, uh, commentator of years gone by. Matthew Henry said, grace is the soul. Grace in the soul is a new life in the soul. As death locks up the senses, seals up all the powers and faculties, so does the state of sin. As to anything that is good, grace unlocks and opens all and enlarges the soul. Observe, a regenerate sinner becomes a living soul. Praise God for that. 
He lives a life of sanctification, being born of God. He lives in the sense of the law, being delivered from the guilt of sin by pardoning and justifying grace. He hath quickened us together with Christ. Our spiritual life, Mr. Henry said, our spiritual life results from our union with Christ. It is in Him that we live. As Jesus said, because I live, He shall live also. How do I know He loves me? From this passage, because He made me alive. He gave you life. He gave you spiritual life. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. How can we question the love of God? When He said, I love you this much. Oh, I wanted more, God. He gave you everything. He gave everything that you and I might be alive. That we might have life eternal. Greater love hath no man than this, the Bible says in John 15. That a man lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5, 8, but God, and I love this verse, probably one of my top Ten favorite verses in the Bible. But God committeth his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not while I was getting better. Not once I became spiritual. Not once I cleaned up my life. But while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for us. I didn't have to improve myself. Matter of fact, it wouldn't have made a difference if I did. I didn't have to prove to him I was lovable. Why? I'm not lovable. He decided to love me. He loved me as I was. He died for the ungodly. By the way, he died for those that we wouldn't die for. When you think of the, the most evil and vile people in our world and in the past, we think of people like Timothy McVeigh. Became popular this last year. And uh, pop culture. Can I tell you that as wicked and vile as the crimes that Mr. McVeigh committed. He, I'm sorry, Mr. Dahmer and Mr. Mr. McVeigh bombing the tower. Uh, Mr. Dahmer, who I was thinking of, who killed and ate people and stored body parts, as wicked as all that was. God said, I, I'm, I want to make available to him salvation. Had he trusted Christ? Charles Manson. The vilest person you can think of in the world that we go, oh, that, pff, that's wicked. You know what God says? I love them. I love them. He wants to make them whole. He wants to quicken them. We live in a system that knows nothing of love. We know a perverted understanding of love. But I want to assure you tonight that God loves you. And he doesn't love you because he wants to get something from you. He doesn't love you because he, he's, he's trying to uh, earn something. He just loves you. And his love isn't temporary, it's everlasting. It's forever and forever and forever and forever. How many of you have ever eaten something that you love so much, you ate so much of it, it made you sick and you didn't want to eat it again? You ever been there? What was it, Josh? My food? <laughs> well, as a boy, I, I like sauerkraut. How many of you like sauerkraut? We made sauerkraut when I was a boy. I like sauerkraut. 
I think sauerkraut's awesome, Brother Mike. It's good stuff. I still like it. But as a young boy, about nine years old, I decided to eat a whole jar of sauerkraut. And I ate a whole jar of sauerkraut. I should have good gut bacteria the rest of my life, Brother Krim. I was sick. I was real sick. I mean sick, sick, sick. I didn't want to eat sauerkraut for a long time. God never gets sick of you. He loves us with an everlasting love. For John 4, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, dwelleth God dwelleth with him, and he and God. And we know and believe the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. God's proven his love through the Son, Jesus Christ. Number two. The number two proof we find here in this passage quickly tonight. Which we find in verse 6. And he hath raised us up together and made us set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Proof number two tonight. He raised me up. He raised me up. He raised you up. You know, remember when Jesus Christ was nailed to that cross, all of my sin, all of your guilt and my guilt and your sin and my sin was placed on Him. All of it. I don't believe for one second that Jesus made a limited atonement. Those that would try to pervert the gospel to say that Jesus only died for a certain portion of sin. Can I tell you that if that were true, then Jesus Christ is a liar. And we ought to burn this book. Because he said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If the Bible doesn't mean that, if, if it doesn't mean everybody, if there's someone who, no, he didn't die for your sin, he died for yours and not for yours, then God's a liar. And he's a charlatan, and he can't be trusted. Rather, he died for all. He bore all sin, every bit of it, all of sin. It was, it was on him on the cross. It was, hold on, when he came off of that cross, was buried with him, was buried with him. I remember, I believe it was my grandmother's funeral, my dad's mom that I preached back in 90, it was 98. My wife and I have been married a few years. I think my memory's right. I remember at the funeral, my, my cousins, I remember them all taking a note and folding that note up, placing that note in the casket. To be buried with her. Can I tell you when Jesus was placed in that tomb. Your sin was placed there with him. The sin that he bore on Calvary. He took to the tomb. So pastor what's the big deal about that? What's the big deal about Jesus. Taking my sin to the tomb. Because he didn't stay there. He rose again. He, 
he rose again, meaning that sin was put ever behind him. In the book of Psalm chapter 103, verse 8, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dwelt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are but dust. Look at verse 6 again in our text. It says, And hath raised us up together, and made us set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice that phrase, hath raised us up together. Can I tell you those that know the English language better than I do will tell you that that phrase there uh, is something that is past tense. Not he's going to, but he already did. He hath raised us up. So preacher, when did that happen? When did he raise me up? Three days and three nights after they placed the body of our lovely Lord on the ground, when he rose again, you were raised with him. I was raised with him. He was raised incorruptible. Guess what, Christian? I was raised incorruptible in him. I know he loves me. I see the proof of his love. He, he quickened me. He made me alive. He raised me up with him. If you will, I was nailed to that cross with him. I was buried with him. I was risen with him. He brought within the redemption our new creation. I'm not just saved from hell. And I praise God I'm saved from hell. I'm glad I'm not going to hell. But can I tell you, can I tell you tonight that salvation is not just fire insurance from hell? I, I'm glad that I, there's no chance that I can go to hell. I had, I had two people yesterday tell me to go to hell. Brother Mud, I had one person tell me to do things that were physically impossible. I had, had some very rude people yesterday. But two different people told me to go to hell yesterday. That was their words. Now, I didn't say it. I, 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 here's what I said. I said, God bless you. <laughs> that was my answer as I was trying to get my gospel track. But what I wanted to say was I couldn't go to hell if I wanted to. Amen. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry you want me to go there, but I can't go. I, I have, I'm saved from hell, but I am saved to heaven. I am raised up. And Christian, let's not forget what we have. Let's worship him. Let's praise him for what he's done as we see his love. I'm made alive. I am risen with him. What a wonderful thing. He's forgiven me. He's pardoned me. He's regenerated me. He's adopted me. He's cleansed me. He's given me a home in heaven. He, he's with me. He's never leave me, never forsake me. And one day he's going to come back and say, Hey, come up here. And I'm going. How wonderful. I'm risen with him. All of this is done in Christ Jesus. So here's the question. Why do we live like we're part of this world? Why do we live like the people of earth? When Carrie was giving birth to Rebecca, it was a very 
very traumatic experience. It was very difficult. It was very dangerous few moments. The doctor came, tried one last procedure, and she told me, she said, Mr. Rice, if this doesn't work right here, right now, on this bed in this room, I am doing emergency cesarean section. It was some tense moments. I, I deal with tense moments with humor. Maybe you've understood that about me. But our doctor, she walked in and she had this, you'd almost thought COVID was in the air. She had a mask on. She had this plastic shield on. She had rubber gloves on. She had her hands up like this. And she was a, I can't remember what nationality she was, maybe East Indian, I think, lady, little lady. She came in and she looked like some kind of alien creature because of all the stuff she had on. And she walked in like this. And uh, quietly to the two nurses that were with me, I said, take me to your leader. Uh, they thought it was funny. She didn't think it was funny at all. Uh, Rebecca thought it was funny. She was laughing in the womb, but they didn't think it was funny. <laughs> Carrie was punching me. But Now, we joke about, you know, oh, not of this world, you know, something extraterrestrial. I think they've been shooting down on UFOs here the last couple weeks. Anyway, you and I, we're not of this world. We are not terrestrial. We are extraterrestrial. We belong to heaven. I've already been raised up in him. There's no reason for me to live like I belong. I, I, I've been made an heir of God, joint heirs with Christ. Eternity is my time frame. So many things we could go into tonight, but we see the love of God in him raising us up. Number three here in our text. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 2. Then in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Number 3 tonight, we see here that he shows grace. He shows kindness. Now, if... I'll let Brother Eric be God tonight. His wife would never hear the end of it if he got to be God. But if Brother Eric were God, and somebody came up and smacked him in the face, I mean just pop! Brother Eric's a mild-mannered, genteel gentleman. But I have a feeling if you pop Brother Eric in the face one too many times, he's not going to show grace and kindness. There's going to be a point, like, like Popeye. How many of you remember Popeye? Uh, but Mark, you said your dad said Popeye was your favorite. That was my favorite cartoon as a kid. Popeye's chicken. <laughs> That's my favorite chicken now. But Popeye was my favorite cartoon as a kid. And Popeye had the phrase... I've stood all I could stand, and I can't stand no more. And he'd be pushed just to the edge until finally he was ready to fight. Let's just be real honest. If you were God and you had to deal with you, there would come a point. The point would have come a long time ago where I would have said, Brian Rice, you're done. And yet God shows me grace. He shows me kindness. Amen. What is grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. 
Grace, getting something good I do not deserve. Kindness, why? Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. How wonderful here. He might show the exceeding riches of his grace. Not just here. Here's a little bit of grace. The exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Here we see his love for the present and all for the future. It's not I want to give you something now, but not later. He wants to give us all throughout our relationship with him and through all eternity grace, kindness. God shows his love every day. Every day. It is of his mercies that we are not consumed. Mr. Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, that preached during the Great Awakening. Mr. Edwards, who typed out or wrote down, not typed, he, he wrote down his messages. He was very poor of seeing. He would write his messages out word for word. He was not an orator. He was not a great public speaker. He would write out word for word his message. And it's said of Mr. Edwards that he would bend his head where he was face to face, probably, probably have macular degeneration, some sort of vision problem, as he would get very close to his notes and he would read them. It's said in a monotone voice, Brother Mott. It wasn't about the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. It was about the Holy Spirit of God that led Mr. Edwards to preach the Holy Book of God. Amen. And as Mr. Edwards would preach his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, people, not at the invitation, during the service, sinners would crawl on their hands and knees to the altar, begging God to save them. But in his message, he said that we are as a sinner, we are but held by the very spider thread above the very pit of hell. At any moment, could be plunged headlong. Can I tell you, that's where I was. But that's not where I am. Now I have His grace. Now I have His kindness. How wonderful that is. How wonderful that we have the proof of his love. By the way, that grace and kindness speaks of safety. Speaks of assurance. I've been in some dangerous places. I've been in some places that were very, very dangerous. I joke with people once in a while, some of the worst parts of Edmonton. I've been in playgrounds that were more dangerous than Edmonton. I, I've, I've been in some scary situations. I've been in some dangerous situations. But those times I've been in dangerous situations, it was because and while I was sharing the gospel. And I'll be real honest with you, there's never been a time when I've been in a dangerous place sharing the gospel when I've been fearful. Probably because I'm just a, a dummy. But I, I just knew I'm supposed to be here. <laughs> The Lord knows. If he wants me here, then I'm supposed to be here. I remember going in a building, and as I went to go in the building, the police in the police station at the bottom of the building looked at me and said, don't go in here. If you go in that elevator and you do not come back, Chicago police, they told me, we will not come look for you. 
We don't care what happens to you after you go in that door. We're not coming up there. Just so you know, you're on your own. That's not good. Why? Because I like dangerous situations? No, because I needed to share the gospel in that building. Can I tell you that God's grace and kindness are enough? Does that mean that I'm always going to be safe? No. But it means I'll always be where God wants me to be. I'll always be in his will as long as I trust him. By the way, Peter, when he was crucified upside down, he was in God's hand. So, but pastor, hold on a minute. That's pretty dangerous. That, that's not a good thing. He glorified God even in death. We get so hung up on our perceived safety and our perceived enjoyment of life that we forget that it's about God's glory, God's blessing. We see his kindness. We see his grace. The Bible says in Jude, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. By the way, let me, let me stop here just a moment. This isn't the message. But just in case there's anybody here that's struggling with this understanding of eternal security, if you think that you can lose your salvation, then you think God is not able. The Bible tells us right here he's able. Now, what does it say about God if he's able to keep you and he doesn't? Either he's a liar or he's evil. True? One of those things has to be true. So for me to believe, I'd have to throw away so many doctrines, but for me to believe that I could lose my salvation, I've got to either accept that God is evil or God is a liar. That's it. There, there, there's, you can't rectify it any other way. He's able. He's able to keep me from falling, to present me faultless before the presence of glory with exceeding joy. Jude 25, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Number four, lastly tonight, verse number 10 in our text, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto Good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Number four tonight as we see the next proof of God's love for us. He created you. Not only did he create you, but he created you for good works. Good works. For good works. I, I, I love this thought. And number one, we're his workmanship. We're his workmanship. I haven't for years, but years ago I used to build, I used to do some bowyering. How many of you know what bowyering is? Brother Darren's done some bowyering. Uh, I, I used to build longbows. And I several years ago now, probably 16, 17, 18, 19, maybe 19 years ago, I decided to build one for my dad. 
and I didn't use fiberglass. I used God's fiberglass. How many of you know what God's fiberglass is? Bamboo. And I, I did a tri-lamb bow, and I built it out of the front of the bow, the side when you pull the bow, the side people see facing away from you was raw bamboo. And then two other laminations glued together in a coal and a form. And uh, after I glued it into the shape I wanted, then I, I cut it down to shape and profiled and sanded. And I finished that bow. I created it. I crafted it. I wrote, I think, on the top bottom limb or top limb, I can't remember, facing the person holding the bow, Two letters inside of quotation marks. A P and an A. How many of you know what that stands for? Paul. That's what I call my dad most of the time. I call him Paul. One time we were out soul winning together 20 years ago in a church van in West Virginia. And I said something. I called my dad Paul. And as I got out, one of the men said, Marcus, I... Is your first name Paul? I always thought your first name was Marcus. Uh, but I wrote Paul on that bow. I, I created it. It was crafted by me. It was a gift I gave to my dad. Now, most likely that bow will never be worth millions of dollars uh, because I'm not a sought-after bowyer. I'm not a well-known crafter of bows. Because I made it has no intrinsic value to anyone else except my dad. However, there are some things in this world that are much more valuable because who made them? Many years ago, I was sent a gift from a man that I never, I've still never met. A man that I had helped with something I met online and he decided to send me a gift. He was driving through the area where I grew up, and general area, probably within 10 miles as the crow flies across the river from where my family live. And he stopped in a little country store, little everything store, gas station. Uh, as Lois knows what I'm talking about, little general store of everything. They don't exist much up here, but little place, probably half the size of this building inside. And just a little bit of everything, you go in, you can get a few things, and that's it. In the back of the building, there was a, a little wood-burning stove, a little pot-belly stove, and some chairs where you go and sit and play checkers, that kind of place down south. Most of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But anyway, they, there in that area near the wood-burning stove and the checkers, there was an old tub. I think it was an old uh, bin of some kind, maybe a vegetable bin, maybe an old barrel, actually, come to think of it, he told me, but there's a bunch of just old things in there, and there was an old knife, an old hunting knife, and this guy saw that old hunting knife in this little general store in this little town near where he knew that I was from that area, and he thought, I want to do something nice to pay him back. He paid a few bucks, maybe 20, 30, maybe 50 bucks, I don't remember, he bought this old knife. It was in a ratty sheath that was falling apart. The knife was pitted and old. And he sent it to me as a gift, and I, I was overwhelmed. That's really neat. That's really awesome, really cool old knife. And thanks to the wonders of the Internet and the interwebs, I began to look, and there was a name on the knife. The name was Morseth. 
I began to Google Mr. Morseth. I began to look for the knives that he created that looked like that. And I began to learn something that caused me to message that man and say, Sir, I cannot accept this gift. I, I need to mail it back to you. I realized that that knife, although it was rough and although it was a little ugly and although the sheath was falling apart, it was very valuable. Not because of its condition. It was very valuable because who made it. And I told the man, I said, sir, I'm sending this back to you. I said, I can't accept this gift. It's worth a lot of money. And he said, if you mail it back to me, I'm going to send it back up. He said, I bought it for you. I only paid whatever it was for it. He said, it's yours. And I told him, I said, sir, I'm not going to sell it. I said, I'll keep it uh, as a reminder of your love and you know, appreciation, the gift he sent me. Several years later, a friend who's a custom knife maker stole it from my house and made it look brand new again, and his wife made a custom sheath for it. That didn't add value to the knife, but the value, as far as the world's concerned for that knife, is because of the man, the famous man that made it. That's its value. Christian, can I tell you your value? You were created by him. The master. The master made you. The creator of all things. I have his love because he signed me. His signature. He made me. He made you in his image. I was made by God. I was his workmanship. I've been created in Christ Jesus. And notice the phraseology here in Ephesians 2. Unto good works. Created, by the way, means you didn't just happen. It was purposed. It was planned. I was created in Christ for a specific purpose. I need to find out what that is. Ephesians 4.11 in our text, or just a few verses away, a couple chapters away, says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. God has something for you. He made you. Your worth is because of him, not because of you. These good works we have mentioned here have been preordained or foreordained by God. Titus chapter 3 and verse 8 says, this is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. I want to make a statement. If you have a pen, I encourage you to write it down. I believe a, a powerful statement about this truth. Notice in our text here, we were created, Christian, you and I were created to walk in these good works. Don't miss that. You and I were created to walk in these good works. So, listen to this statement. They await your doing. God created you to walk in those works. 
Can I tell you that they're waiting on you? They await you to do them. They await me to do them. By the way, when I do obey the Lord Jesus Christ, when I follow Him, when I honor Him in my life, I am realizing every step, every work, everything I do is a reminder, God loves me. God loves me. I've got a dear friend who got saved out of serious alcoholism and drunkenness and drugs and horrible, horrible life. Him and his wife, before they got saved, they used to get high on drugs and get angry at each other and shoot at each other with pistols in the house. And I don't mean they were pretending. I mean, they were trying to kill each other. But they would get so high on drugs that amazingly God spared them. They didn't. Several times they tried to kill each other. Somewhere tonight, Brother Hicks is standing behind the pulpit like this, preaching the word of God as an evangelist in the southern U.S. Every time he opens the Bible, lays on the pulpit it's a reminder he used to be laying down lines of cocaine he used to be laying down empty beer bottle after empty beer bottle he used to be picking up the pistol and trying to kill his dear wife but praise the Lord God created him and ordained him to walk in good works it's a reminder Christian I give that example because it's easy for you to see and, and see the difference. But I hope tonight you understand that the difference is in you as well. Amen. It's in you as well. So, Pastor, I, I was never a drunkard. I, I was never a drug addict. I never tried to kill my wife. Well, maybe I tried to kill my wife. But I, I, I didn't do those things. Remember, you were dead in trespasses and sins. He made you alive. He didn't just make you alive to make you a scarecrow to do nothing. God made you alive unto good works. And they're waiting for you to do them. Just a couple of thoughts as we close here tonight. How do we walk in good works? How do we walk in good works? Very, very quickly. By showing gratitude for redemption. By showing gratitude for redemption. Giving him praise for what he's done for us. For dying on the cross. Forgiving our sin. Placing us in the heavenlies. What if you were unsaved on your way to hell tonight? That's where you'd be without Jesus Christ. How do we walk in good works? By showing gratitude for redemption. Next, number two. By surrendering to sanctification. By surrendering to sanctification. I shared the story of my big toe breaking in half. They had to stitch it up. I didn't want them to stitch it up. I didn't want to surrender to have it stitched up. My dad and a bunch of nurses had to hold me down so they could stick needles in me, and then they could sew me up. But it needed to be done. It had to be done. You and I need to surrender to letting God set us apart and sanctify us for his purpose.
to the growth process. First Peter or Second Peter chapter one verse five. I'm not going to turn there tonight, but virtue, on knowledge, on temperance, on patience, on godliness, on brotherly kindness, on love. We need to surrender to that process. Number three, how do we walk in good works? I'm going to close with this thought tonight. By serving. By serving in all areas of good works. What is it God wants you to do? Not what is it God wants the pastor to do. Not what is it God wants your spouse to do or your your child to do or, or Brother Colton to do. What's God want you to do? Hey, teenager, what's God want you to do? Oh, I'm just a teenager. <coughs> David, a teenager, walked down in the valley of Elam and said, you will not defy my God. He affected his whole country. His whole country. Young married couple, what's God want you to do? Older couple here tonight, maybe your kids are grown. What's God want you to do? What is it God wants you to do? Has he set something aside that he said, okay, I've got some works for you to do. At least once a week, sometimes a couple times a week, Colton and I will sit in my office, our office now, And I'll say to Colton, hey, here's some things I want you to do this week. He'll pull out a notebook. Okay. I'd like to get this, 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 and this done. Here you go. Now, I may ask him, hey, did we get that done? Is that, but that's not my work. That's his work. I believe God has work for you. He has good works for us. He's got them set aside. He created you unto good works. When God calls, just like little Samuel, the day's gone by. Won't you answer? What do you want, Lord? Okay. You know why you don't want to answer? Because you don't want to do what God wants you to do. I know. You know why? Because I don't always want to do what God wants me to do. How do we walk in good works? By serving in every area. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity tonight to walk in the works that you've prepared for us. Lord, we could spend so long talking about the proofs of love that you have for us. Lord, I praise you. I thank you. I want to worship you tonight for your goodness and your love. As well, Lord, tonight, I want us to walk in those works you have for us. Lord, I believe with all my heart tonight that you have prepared some works for every one of us. And, Lord, a lot of them don't get done. Because you prepared them for us, for no one else. God, would you help us to be surrendered tonight? Help us to walk in them. Help us to surrender to sanctification. Help us to praise you for our redemption. God, may we walk in that love.
that you've proven over and over and over again in scriptures. Lord, would you be glorified tonight during this time of invitation as we set aside some time just to worship you, to praise you, to yield to your purpose. May that be the case. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Remember Colton. Let's sing together. 301. Only trust him. Number 301. you're so good to us Lord we offer our praise and our worship to you for you're worthy of it Lord may we do more than sing your praises may we do more than lift up your name in this place with our brothers and sisters in Christ but may we publish your name among the heathen may we speak of your goodness every day may we be reminded of your love as we tell others of it. And God, may we find those works that you have for us. May we pick it up on our shoulder. And may we walk in that path and that plan that you have made just for us. How wonderful that purpose, that fulfillment. Bless us now, Lord. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming. I love to be with God's people, and boy, tonight is no exception to that. It's wonderful to be here. Choir, thank you for singing, and I appreciate that, and then everybody who participated. Uh, great job, Brother Colton, leading the singing and getting us going on that. I love to be in God's house, and I'm very thankful. I had the joy. My dad got saved when he was um, 11 years old. Uh, he, his mom was an alcoholic. Family was dysfunctional. Challenges in every way. Crystal balls and carrot cards and things of that nature. And a Sunday school teacher in a local church was given a room by his pastor and said, Would you 
would you teach the junior age boys? And he wasn't content to have one or two kids. He went out every Saturday and sometimes the nights and tried to find kids to come and be in his class. And he, my dad, my uncle told me, just a little small fella compared to my uncle. He said, just a little man, John, but that guy would get us to go in there and he would teach us the Bible. And of course, your dad and I, we just tried to stay away from mom on the weekends because it was so difficult to be there when mama was drunk. And so he gave us a chance to be there, taught us the Bible, and gave us a cookie and a, a cup of, of Kool-Aid, and, and we went off to big church. One day, he tapped your dad on the shoulder and said, Richard, could you stay after class? He put a folding chair in the corner. That's where the teacher sat. He turned another folding chair facing him, and he said, Richard, sit here. And he began to take a Bible and show your daddy how to be saved. And he said, that day was the best day of your dad's life. He always, he came into big church about 20 minutes later, said, Douglas, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I know for sure I'm saved now. I'm going to heaven. Douglas, you're going to hell. You're not saved yet, you know. And he was giving it to him. He said, Richard, we're talking, just listen in church here, man. You know? And all week he was so excited. He went home and told mom he was saved. And mama was drunk. And she said, no, you can't be saved. The Bible says you have to be 12 to be saved. And you're still 11. And... Uh, <clears throat> He said, no, Mama, I'm saved. I know I'm saved. And that week, that week, all week long, your, your dad was so excited. I told, I told him, I said, listen, tell the teacher to tap me on the shoulder today. I want to sit in that chair. And the next week he said, I got saved. The teacher showed me how to be saved. And, of course, what a blessing to know that a local church did its job. Everybody gets saved. There has to be three factors. There has to be the Word of God because faith cometh by hearing. There has to be the Spirit of God because He has to bring conviction of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. He's the one I can't bring anyone conviction. That's the job of the Holy Spirit, but I'm glad He does His job. And then the third factor is a local church has to do its job. A local church needs to protect and to propagate the truth. And, uh, boy, the way you keep the truth and protect the truth is by keep getting it out. <laughs> You ever hear something real funny? You heard a joke. You say, oh, man, when I go home, I'm going to tell my family about this joke. And you get home and you can't remember the joke? <laughs> that ever happened to you or is it just me that happens to you? Oh, it's frustrating. You're like, oh, it was so funny. I laughed. Oh, what was it? You know how you can remember a joke? Tell a joke. <laughs> you tell it, you remember it. You know how you keep the truth? You tell the truth. Amen. You keep getting the gospel out and you'll keep that. So many churches. And the Bible says the church is the pillar and the ground of truth. truth. Yeah, there's a lot of churches. They have buildings, they have parking lots, they have cars, they have pastors, have programs. They just don't have the truth. Couldn't find the truth there with a flashlight. And you went to ask the pastor how to get to heaven married that they wouldn't know. He or she wouldn't be able to tell you. Wouldn't be able to tell you how to get to heaven from there because they've lost the truth. And boy, I'm so glad for local churches and uh, each of our pastors that are here, you represent. Uh, a local church and the vision. You're the captain of world evangelism. And I am so glad that you are doing what God's called you to do. There's just two positions open in Christianity. One is to be the pastor of your church. The other one is to help your pastor pastor that church. And that's if your job is to pastor, then do the best job you can. If your job is to, is to help your pastor, then decide, you know what, I want to be a dedicated helper. And I'm going to help my pastor Pastor the church God's given to pastor and do the very best you can do in any arena and play your role. And it's wonderful. Labors together with God. I've been thinking about this theme since uh, 
Pastor Rice sent me an email and told me this is what they're going to be doing, and, and I'm excited about this. He's hoping to baptize son, someone Sunday morning and break right through that, laboring together, just break through that and uh, be excited about that. 149 days without an accident, and the last accident was Brother Rice. He had an accident, and so this is going great right here. And so you guys all be careful going down the steps tonight. We don't want to make sure you're here for the safety meeting tomorrow morning at 8.30, all right? And uh, we'll, I don't know, we might, we might just eat, eat too many donuts and drink too, many too much coffee. We might have an accident after that. But uh, it's a joy to be with you. My wife and I are so thrilled to know what God is doing north of our border. But we're grateful for what God is doing south of your border, too. And, and I'm glad that we have a time. And it's a great time to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, we can find all kinds of problems. But nothing happened in politics keeps me from telling someone else about Jesus Christ. Nothing happened in the world or attacks are going to keep you from going across the street and talking to someone about Christ or giving out a gospel track, as Pastor said just a moment ago. I'm so glad he said that. You know who gives out gospel tracks? People that have them. <laughs> if you don't have them, you're not going to give them out. I, I gave one today to a guy named Jason. I said, Jason, let me tell you, this tells you about Jesus. He said, Pastor, I'm from India, and I just got baptized a few weeks ago. He goes, I was Hindu, but now I'm, I'm a Christian. I just became a Christian. I said, oh, that's great. We're going to talk more about that in my stay there at the hotel, but I'm looking forward to that. You know, it tracks what they do. It tracks, determines someone's curiosity. You know, when you give someone a gospel track and they tear it up and throw it in the ground, you can take away that they're not really interested right now, right? You can say, oh, they're not real curious right now. That's what happens. They determine someone's curiosity. If they hand it back to you or lie to want it or whatever, you just know well, that they're not ready right now. They need a little more sunshine of God's love. They need a little more moisture from God's grace and His heavens to, to, to land on their heart. They're just not interested right now. So when you give a track, you can determine someone's interest. Now, if they take it and start looking at it uh, and start looking at that and say, you know, I've been looking for a church. Okay, now you know there's some interest there. Now you know you can, and they open up conversation with people. You can begin to talk with conversation. And then another thing I love a gospel track I love is they go places that you're not going to go. They'll end up in junk drawers and, and in people's pockets. I have a sweet little lady. She's a, a missionary's wife in Belarus. And her daddy was drunk on the, on, on the platform of a uh, train station. And somehow or another, someone gave him a track, and he took it. He put it in his pocket. He stumbled on home, and his wife pulled his clothes off and took his jacket off, and he passed out. And she looked at his jacket, and she found a track. And she had it set up into the wee hours of the morning and began to read that track. And by herself, she accepted the Lord as her Savior. Later that next week, she led her daughter through that track, and that little girl at 13 years old accepted the Lord. And now she's a pastor's wife in Belarus because of a gospel track. I remember one day watching a man kind of come into the church a little bit late, and he was over here on my right. And I saw him come in. I was very interested, but I preached the message and shook his hand. And he said, uh, I, I said, uh, I said, what brings you? He goes, oh, you wouldn't believe it. He goes, uh, Someone gave me a paper, and, um, and, but it's been a long time. And I said, I said, well, listen, can I talk to you about it? He goes, no, no, can, can you come to my house? His name was Andy, and then his wife's name was T, and I went to Andy and T's house, and we went and talked to them. And 
went through the gospel track, got, went through the gospel with them, and they both accepted Jesus Christ. He said, you know what happened? I was, um, he said, about, about a year and a half, two years ago, I was at a funeral of a family member, and a lady walked up to me, and she told me a track, and I have twin daughters. He said, you need to get those girls in church. You need to take them. Because by that time, I had a good job. I was doing good. I didn't have an interest in church. He said, I took the track, and I don't know how, but this over the last few weeks, I've been going through a hard time. He goes, that job I had, I got to have to get another job, and it doesn't pay as well. So I'm going through some problems with my wife, and the kids are struggling. I'm just not doing good. And Sunday afternoon, I was cleaning out a junk drawer, and I found that paper. I looked on there and said, you know, I can make it. It's only 4.30 now. I can be at that church the time that it starts. I just drove to the church tonight. And that's what God did to bring him to Jesus Christ, a gospel track. You know, you never can know what might happen with that. And I'm glad Pastor brought that to our attention this evening. And I love, love being with you. And I'm really glad to share a few moments. I know we didn't get in here to get out, but I don't want to be a long time. I heard about one guy. He said, I got so much to say in the message, I don't know where to start. A little kid in the back says, start somewhere toward the end. <laughs> so uh, we'll try to get started here shortly here in just a second. And, uh, but I am so glad to be with you. And I'll tell you a little bit more about our story maybe tomorrow. But I uh, had the joy to be raised in a Christian home. And my dad met my beautiful mom, Janelle, and they were married. And my dad's lived with Jesus for 28 years. But um, my mother had a great uh, background. Her, her dad was a Christian. Her mom was a Christian. And, and one of his grand, her grandparents were Christians. And, but um, they met each other, and God gave them a love relationship. They had six children. My name is John. I'm their oldest son. They, I have three brothers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, we're all pastors of a church. We pastor a church in Indiana and Illinois, Texas, and Tennessee. And then we have two sisters, Acts and Romans. I'm just joking, not really. Uh, their names are Jan and Mary. But, but uh, my sister is a missionary in a, in a Muslim country of Adjur Bashan. And my other sister has taught in a Christian school for years. And so thankful for churches like this one. And uh, my dad had happy feet, so he didn't stay in one place very long. and moved around a lot. And, um, and, but we always had good men of God. Sometimes the church buildings were a little large, like this one was. Sometimes they were smaller. Sometimes the pastor was older. Sometimes he was younger. Sometimes he preached really long. Sometimes he preached really short. I like those short, short uh, messages. They had different, different styles and different backgrounds. Some went to Bible institutes, and some got master's degrees from college. One thing I just remember about my pastors, they all loved the Lord. And they did the best they could do, and they preached the Word of God, and they opened up camps and took us to camps and BBSs, and, and they fixed the buildings, and they put fuels in vans and buses and picked up people and took us to nursing homes, like Pastor Arbo was telling about just a few moments. What a great testimony that is. And it just did the right things the right way for the right reasons. And, boy, I'm so blessed by that. I got to watch that. I never thought I'd ever be a pastor. I was a school teacher for 11 years, and I had managed to preach seven times in my 11 years after I finished Bible college until I, until I became a pastor. And uh, three of those times, I was so nervous, I got sick and threw up, and it was miserable. And the other four times, the audience got sick and threw up, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't pretty. But I was grading my high school English papers, and, and on April the 18th in 2000, and a phone rang. I picked it up, and 
It was a deacon of a church, and they had not had a pastor what would be 13 months without a pastor. And uh, they said, really, everything, everyone is here is here because they want to be here. Everybody else has kind of left and wonder if you would be willing to come and be our pastor. And I said, well, you know, I'll pray for you, but I don't think I could be your pastor, you know. I could think about a couple people that might help you. And he goes, well, we don't want your recommendations. We want you to consider being our pastor. And that changed my life. And for these last 24 years now, almost, I've had the joy to partner with my wife and God's people and uh, in the work of the Lord. And it's a wonderful thing. It's not an easy thing. It's not always the devil. The devil's strategies have not changed to attack the shepherd so he can scatter the sheep. They're always banging away. Every pastor has a bullseye on him. Every missionary has a bullseye on him that the devil's trying to get him to sit still for a second so he can let go his arrows of doubt and hurt and difficulties. That's why you want to be a blessing to your pastor and uh, be an encouragement to them. Uh, pastors struggle. It's not easy sometimes. I'm not seeking for any sympathy. I'm just telling you. Uh, they're just, you just got to put your pants on the same way everybody else does. You're just a human being. You have a different position. But uh, pastors oftentimes, they struggle with inadequacies. They don't feel like they're worthy to do it, and they're not doing a good job. And if they were doing a better job, more things would happen. They, they get bad thoughts that come to their mind that, and, and there's always bullies and critics, somebody in the congregation and somebody on the Internet, someone who watches the, the live stream just wants to give them an email or call them or text them and say that wasn't right or you need to study your Bible more or whatever. Just always have an opinion about something. Financial pressures, whatever financial pressures a person would have, they have a, more so in the ministry because God has designed money to be in the middle of things. And it's just... It's challenging. It's difficult. Uh, people, you know, when they call your pastor, they, you know, no one calls, you know, call nurse, call doctor, call policeman. But they'll say, call pastor. <laughs> you know, someone dies, call pastor. Have a baby, call pastor. You know, want to get married, call pastor. Can't pay your rent, call pastor. <laughs> <laughs> Having financial problems, call pastor. Marriage problems, call pastor. And you know, that's a wonderful role in the life of believers. At the same time, there's a lot of pressure that goes with that. A lot of challenges. And I, uh, I thank God for the men of God that are here. And I thank you for coming. And I'm thankful for this church, Cornerstone Baptist Church. Thank you for hosting the meeting and, and expending. Already you've been taking offerings over and over and praying for the meeting. And... Uh, I know a little bit about hosting a conference, and it's just not done on spare time and pocket change. And it, many of you who paid and taken time off work to come and be here and spend a couple days with us, thank you for coming. And uh, your presence and your participation are really big. Uh, we were going to have this meeting whether you came or not. <laughs> but because you came, it's a lot better. And your presence encourages me, it encourages my wife, it encourages Pastor and Mrs. Rice, and actually everybody around you. It's just a blessing that you would take the time and effort and energy to come. We're glad to be with you. Looking forward to sharing time together as we talk about laboring together. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter number 3. 4, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. Of course, the theme of the conference is laboring together, and that comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where the Bible tells us 
Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. Uh, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. By the way, God's looking for faithfulness, and he rewards faithfulness. Um, it, and really, faithfulness is the key to fruitfulness. And we want to be fruitful, but the truth of the matter is, God's looking at faith. He doesn't say, well done, now good and fruitful servant. Now, he wants us to be fruitful, but uh, we don't know all that's going on. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, another time, maybe, but... Uh, one thing the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he tells us that, that um, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. See, what's the Lord going to do when he comes? He's going to pull back the curtain of the evil works of darkness. What was really going in the satanic world against what, was going, what, 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 what we're trying to accomplish. And then he'll pull back another curtain, and that is the motives of the heart. What was really going on in, in here? Not only in your heart, but the heart of your adversaries, the heart of the people. And then shall every man have praise of God. And boy, friend, that's what we want to do. We want to, we're going to see Jesus. We're going to spend the rest of our eternity with him if we know him. We certainly would like to be faithful to him while we have a chance. And this is the parentheses of time. If you're going to do your giving, do your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going. Okay? Uh, listen, if there's no soul winning in heaven. There's no gospel tracts in heaven. There's no need for it. There's not going to be a missions conference in heaven. There's not going to be a, an offering taken in heaven for a building someplace. No, if you're going to do that, you've got to do that now. If you're going to witness, you might as well witness now. If you're going to give, let's give today. Let's find what we can do today and, because uh, Jesus is going to come. And if he doesn't come in our lifetime, we're going to see him. And he says, it's the point of every man wants to die. And after that, it's the evaluation. And we'll give an account of the deeds done while in our body, while we're still breathing, what we did with our time and our talents, our, our training, our trials, our, our tribe, our, 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 uh, our teaching. Whatever happened to us, do you, I don't have to give an account for you. You don't have to give an account for me. But to whom much is given, <laughs> much is required. And may the Lord help us to be faithful about that. And he said, we're, but we're laborers together with God. I think sometimes every once in a while we get in a little thought that we think, oh, man, I want to do great things for God. I'm not in that group. I want to do great things for, with him. <laughs> I'm not interested in trying to press him. I can't do that. But I like going where he's going. Years ago, we have nine children. All of them are girls except for seven. And uh, we have all those kids. And, but when those kids were little, my wife, we'd get, uh, every few years, we'd get some nice carpet. And she'd say, John, let's take our shoes off at the door and, and put all the shoes there. And boys, so that was what we do. We would do that, and our kids did the same thing. So I'd come in and, and get my, uh, my shoes off and put them there. But whenever it was time to get my shoes on, you know, I'd, just, I'd, start, I'd sit down in the chair by the door and start putting my shoes on. Inevitably, one of the little kids would come up to me, and they go, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. i say, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're scurrying around trying to find their shoes. And then they get them together, and they go, Daddy, Daddy, I go, I go. I said, where am I going? I don't know. You know, they didn't know where I was going. They just wanted to go where I was going. You know why they want to go where I'm going? Because I have money, and they're broke. <laughs> I can drive a car. They can't drive a car. 
I like to stop at Tim Hortons. <laughs> I like to stop at a, at a convenience store. I like to get a snack every now and then. So they know if they go with Dad, he's got control, he's got money, and he likes snacks. You know, the truth of the matter is, when God puts his shoes on, you need to get your shoes together too. And say, Lord, I want to go where you're going. I want to do what you want me to be done. And that's important. Boy, that's important for all of us. Tonight I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, laboring together through trials. Difficult times are, are just everyone has them. I have them and you have them. Maybe some of you say, Pastor, I, I'm not going to need this message. I'm doing good right now. Well, bless your heart. That's what they say in the South. If, they, if you don't really like someone, you just say, bless your heart. No, no. no, I'm just teasing. But you know, the truth of the matter is maybe you came here and said, Pastor, I, I'm doing great. I'm happy for you. Keep breathing. Because you're going to probably have some difficult times. You know, the Bible's all about people who had some difficult times. Uh, if you won't study, God tells the good and the bad and the ugly. He tells the good days of David. He tells some bad days of David. He says the good days of, of Saul when he was humble and his side. He talked about we're chasing donkeys. Then he talked about a time where he became presumptuous. He talks about Peter preaching at Pentecost, but he doesn't leave out that Peter cursed and denied the Lord. He tells the good and the bad. He tells about Paul and his missionary journeys and tells Paul and his big spat with, with uh, Barnabas. He kind of tells the good and the bad. Trials are reality. You can't listen to the Apostle Paul without reading 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and he goes through the litany of different things that he had gone through. Telling you what, when I look at that life, every once in a while someone will say, boy, you rode an airplane four hours with you big, tall, lanky guy and probably had to eat your knees. I always think about that. Uh, it's not so bad compared to the Apostle Paul's shipwrecks. I think I'll just take an airplane ride for three hours. It's not that big of a deal. But boy, he went through some difficult times. And Apostle Paul tells a little bit of a strategy that he goes through when he's laboring together with the Lord through some difficult times. We'll talk about that a little bit tomorrow with the pastors and the men laboring together through distractions and frustrations and attacks and difficulties. It, it comes. What did the Apostle Paul say? Well, if you would please look at 2 Corinthians chapter number uh, 4, and let's read this if we can. If you're comfortable, uh, I want to make you uncomfortable, okay? I'm going to ask you to stand one more time if we can, please. You heard what the pastor's job is to do, to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. <laughs> and so let's look at this real quickly if we can. Verse number 8. Uh, verse 7. How about reading verse 7 with me? Everyone ready? Together. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power might be of God. Verse 8 says, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered into death for Jesus' sake. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, 
the life in you. Would you read verse 13, please? We, having the same spirit of faith, Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. Verse 15, for all things are for your sakes. Redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. Verse 17 and 18, let's read it together. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen. Our Father, I thank you for the privilege to be an extension of Pastor Rice uh, at this congregation tonight. And Lord, thank you for everybody who's here and then those who will come tomorrow after their midweek service is over. God, would you please work in our hearts? I know I'm nothing. I know you're everything. I know that you do not need me, but once again, I need you, and I pray you please help me. Thank you for the sweet friends who are here. Help me to say what I need to say fairly rapidly tonight, Lord. It's a long day. Many have driven a long time. But I pray you administer on the inside while I try to share, share a few thoughts on the outside. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul is spending the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter number 4 talking about the wonderful privilege of getting people the gospel of Christ. All things are that because we have been given the, the gospel message in earthen vessels. Uh, it's, we're the vessel and the gospel is in us through the Holy Spirit of God and we're supposed to get it out to other people. But he goes into a little bit of a testimony. He said, look, we are troubled on every side. He said, I just feel like trouble is meeting me on every front. When I go over here, trouble is here. When I back up, trouble says I'm here. When I step forward, trouble. When I move over, there he is again. I'm troubled on every side. Have you ever had a day like that where it feels like the trouble just is all around you? Trouble's every place. The birds singing out your windows, a vulture. <laughs> it's not a good day. Difficult things. You, you, you're thinking to yourself, you can't make this stuff up. This is crazy. How much opposition I'm getting, how many difficulties I'm having. Well, Apostle Paul is saying, you know, I have a day like that. Your mama told you you'd have days like that. And this is one of those days. It's difficult. He said, we're troubling every side. But the Bible says, but we're not stressed out. We're not distressed. He said, I'm perplexed. He goes, I got more questions than answers. I'm scratching my head so much. I, I don't understand why is this happening. I'm perplexed. But I'm not in despair. He goes on to the next verse, I think verse number 9. Look at it, if you would please. He says, we're, verse 9, persecuted, but I haven't been forsaken. God's still with me. He says, I'm cast down, but I, I'm not destroyed. You know, whenever you have difficult trials of your life, and everybody has them, teenagers have them, single adults have them, married adults have them, senior saints have them, 
Pastors have them. Pastors' wives have them. Hey, nobody's exempt from problems. But someone said if all of our problems were hung out on the line, at the end of the day, you'd pick your problems and I'd pick mine. But we all have them. If we knew everybody's heartache in this room, if everybody just said, like, if just the people in the choir, and these are precious people, but if each of them just said, you know, one of the worst things ever happened to me, if each of them gave a testimony, we'd probably start crying and, and, and disbelief that how could they sing in the choir and have that happen to them if they revealed some of the deepest hurts. But Apostle Paul says, man, we're, we were, this, it's not a walk in the park what we're going through. He said, but I've learned a few things that I'm going to share with you. That's what the Apostle Paul says. He gives some strategies of what to do when you don't know what to do. What to, what to, what to do to, to work through the trials of life and labor together with God even though you got some pressure. Even though you've got trouble on every side and lots of more questions and answers and you're going through uh, times of persecution, you, you haven't been forsaken. Or even fallen down, but you're not destroyed. What do you do in times like that? Well, here's what the Apostle Paul did. Let's just see what he did. Number one, the Bible tells us that he believed God and he told him, I believe you. He believed God and he verbalized his faith in God. Look, if you will, please. He quoted Psalms 116 in verse number 13. Would you look at it? We having the same spirit of faith. According as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I what? We also believe, and therefore speak. You know, one of the first things you can do when you have difficult times or trials that come to your life and my, my life, one of the things we need to do and make a shortcut to it is to say, God, I trust you. Amen. I don't know what's going on, but I trust you. Uh, James said like this, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptation. I don't know about you, but trials and different kind of trials and joy don't go in the same sentence with me. When I have a problem, I do not want to work through my problem. I want to transition out of my problem. <laughs> Yesterday. But God wants to oftentimes transform me through my problem. And give me trust in Him. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. The first thing that, that Paul said, one of the first things he does, number one, he says, you know what? I believe God and I verbalize my faith in him. I've, I've spoken. You know, that's, that's what happens when you get saved. I was witnessing to a lady last week, Katie, and I got to share the gospel with Katie. And Katie, at the end, I said, Katie, if Jesus is willing to accept your sin, would you be willing to accept his sacrifice? Because I've been waiting to do that, okay. I said, okay, do you believe you're a sinner and you can't save yourself? Oh, yes. Do you believe that sinners deserve hell to be separated from God forever? She said, I know. Do you believe that only Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection could forgive your sin if you would come and accept him as your Savior? If he will take your sin, will you take his son, Jesus Christ? She says, yes, I am. I said, you know, the, the Bible says, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, Katie, and with the mouth. Confession is made. You know, that's how I got saved. When I got saved, someone told me, and they said, do you believe that, John? I said, yeah. He said, now would you ask the Lord to save you? For whosoever shall. Oh. 
You know, that's how we got saved. If you're here today, you're not sure if you died, you go to heaven, please don't pass go. <laughs> don't collect $200. Don't, don't do anything. Don't leave. Don't get in your car without. Say, well, my, well, my mama thinks I'm saved. It doesn't matter if your mama thinks you're saved. Well, my pastor thinks I'm saved. It doesn't matter that. Either you and God know that. If you don't know for sure you're saved, don't gamble. The greatest mistake in the world is to go to hell over a mistake. Make sure you know. Well, I'm not sure I remember when I got saved. That's because you weren't there, okay? You need, to, you need to have a time and a place when you get that settled. When you exchange your sin for God's Son. And when you do that, you believe in your heart and you confess with your... But after we're saved, it doesn't stop with that. After we're saved... The just shall live by faith. And faith needs to be verbalized. When you have a difficult time and trouble backs you into a corner, maybe that's when you need to say, God, I trust you. I trust you. The Bible says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Who giveth to all men and upbraideth not, and it shall be. But let him ask in Faith, nothing, asking, faith. You see the verbal and the faith of the heart and the verbally asking God. Listen, when you go through difficult times, that's the time you might want to kneel on your knees and say, God, I trust you. I don't understand. i got more questions than answers. I've got, I've got trouble on every side. I've got persecution. I've got frustrations. I can't. I just feel like I'm going to blow up. That's when we need to say, God, I trust you. Believe and verbalize your faith. That's what Apostle Paul said he did. Number two, he made his focus Jesus. Did you see Jesus pop up on numbers of those pages? Looking unto Jesus. He authored and finished the race. And, and, and make your focus upon the Lord. I am so glad that, that I have Jesus. I'm glad that Jesus has me. I'm glad that in all, when it's all said and done, it's going to be Jesus and me for all eternity. So whatever problem I have today, if it is trouble on every side, I, I have Christ in my heart. The great song, What though wars may come with marching feet and beat of the drum, for I have Christ in my heart. What though nations rage as we approach the end of the age, for I have Christ in my heart. God is still on the throne, almighty God is he, and he cares for his own throughout eternity. So let come what may, whatever it is, I only say that I have Christ in my heart. I have Christ in my heart. But whatever's happened around me, I need to focus on the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, yes. Looking unto Jesus, the author. Amen. For me to live is... To die is gain. I am crucified with. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of. That's Christ. Who loved me and gave himself for me. When you have troubles, number one, believe God and verbalize your faith. And some of us, we might need to get quiet tonight and say, God, I trust you. I'm here because of you. I believe in you in my heart. You know I, I, I believe you. But verbalize it. <coughs> Say it. Man, I got a problem. I'm going I'm to trust you with that. Lord. I need to take that. Let your care and, and turn your care to prayer. 
Be careful for, but everything by prayer. Casting all your upon Him because He cares for you. Trust God and verbalize your faith. Number two, focus on the person of Jesus Christ. And by the way, what can we trust God for? We can trust Him for His purposes and His power. Boy, listen to Brother Arbo's testimony. That wouldn't have blessing. Drive up there and get a fancy, fancy house for 500 bucks a month. Good night in the morning. I feel sorry for the rest of the world after hearing that right there. That's a wonderful thing. But you know what? That's how good God can be. You know, he did. He trusted God's purposes, that God brought him to that place, and then God's power to help him. You know that he doesn't have a corner on that. He doesn't have a monopoly on the power of God. The provision of God, the same Jesus that he has, you have. And we can trust his purposes and his power. Notice what he says, if you would please, at verse number uh, 14. Knowing this, that he which raised up Jesus from the dead, raise up us also by Jesus, and shall present us with you. I want you to notice another thing real quickly. Not only believe God and verbalize your faith. Tell him you believe him. Focus on the person of Jesus. Realize that it's his purposes and his power that helps us. But notice, don't make your problem about you. You know, the quickest way to waste hardship and trials is to make it about you. Make it about me, how it affects me, my thinking, my feelings, my desires. This is, this is interesting. In this chapter, you'll see numerous references to we and us and our. And really, Paul was taking the brunt of a lot of these problems. But he, he didn't make it all about him. It was about me and us and not me, but us and we and our. Don't make it about you. Uh, trust and realize, you know, whatever problem I've been through, other people have gone through that similar problem. In the wee hours of the morning on, April, on August the 16th, we had found out that our 17-year-old son was involved in a car accident. He was riding with a precious family in our church that loved him as much as we loved him. But uh, they, he was a passenger in a seatbelt, and the driver was driving, and the man in the back was sitting there. They were having a good time. They were singing songs. And the lady got mad at her boyfriend. He was parked on the side and slammed the phone down and pulled out in front of their car. And they saw her and tried to go around her. And as they were going around her, she decided to do a U-turn simultaneously. And they hit the back of the car, went up on the hillside, it flipped over. And when it flipped over, it landed on the tires, and the driver got out uninjured. The man in the back got out uninjured. But our son, still stuck in a seat belt with stretch marks on it, something broke his rib, and one rib went into his right lung, and the other rib went right into his heart muscle. In a few moments after CPR and an ambulance pulled up, it wasn't even attending to that accident, just drove just right behind him and put the, 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 the electric shock on him and did all the CPR and did all he could do to revive him and then... Unfortunately, he began to hemorrhage out of his mouth and his ears and his, and his nose, and they realized he had internal bleeding somewhere. And he went home to be with the Lord. And about three hours later, we got a call from the, t the coroner. He said, Mr. Wilkerson, are you the, you the father of Tyler? I said, yes, sir. He said, we're sorry to tell you. After m multiple other things, he just said he sustained fatal injuries. 
Mr. Wilkerson, I'm so sorry. Your son died. And boy, I thought I, I, thought I was going to die myself. Linda was standing there in the hallway of her home at 2670 Magnolia Avenue, and she looked up into my eyes as I got the phone. She said, he's gone, isn't he, honey? We cried like little babies. But I tell you, one of the things that came to my mind really quickly is that we're not the only one to ever go through this. Even God knows what it's like to lose a son. He can help us. Other people have gone through this with a lot less help than we're going to help. We, we got like 1,100 cards in the first two weeks of, after his death of people just saying, we love you, we're praying for you. With unbelievable support. One of the first things that came to my mind is, you know what, other people have gone through this and God helped them and he can help us. And we're going to be in, a, in, a, in a, a camaraderie of other people who have lost. No doubt in this room there are precious people who have received similar news. I think about my friend, Brother Ed Bordell. His son didn't die suddenly. He died with an arduous battle with leukemia. The steroids had made him, he's just a boy, maybe 150 pounds at his heaviest, and now he's over 225, 30 pounds because he's bloated from the steroids, and he begins to bleed out his nose and his eyes and his ears, and he's got so much pain, and his dad's trying to hold him to find him a comfortable place, and, and his arms are about ready to fall off. He can't hardly hold him anymore up, and then he just goes in, into, into eternity. Well, I don't know about you. I, I think when I think about that, I thought, oh, boy, that was hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of, of bills and pressures and difficulties and hospital visits and chemotherapy and all the things. And that's how he transitioned his son. But God helped him. God knows how to help us. Don't make it about you. Make it about his purposes. His power. Once you notice the next thing real quickly, and we see the reasons. Trials come in seasons and they come for reasons. Nobody has a breakneck, terrible life from start to finish I know about. Matter of fact, most of our days are good days. Most, most nights we don't go to bed hungry, like much of the world does. Most of the time, even in this Frigid temperatures that you experience here, and we have a few like that, not near as much as you, bless your heart. <laughs> but, you know, we usually can find a warm place, even when it's 41 below zero. We can find a place where we can get warm for, for the time we have to be. God takes care of us, doesn't he? It's just sad, but many people make a case about, and they spend their whole life angry and frustrated about a few things done against them at the expense of all the things God's done for them. Well, they have maybe something didn't go right here, there, and everywhere, but most of their life's been a good life. And yet we focus on the negative. You know what? Trials come in seasons, and they come for reasons. Here's a couple reasons that God gives us for trials. Look, if you would please, at verse number 15. For all things are for whose sake? Your sake. They're for the sake of others. They benefit other people when we go through difficult times. That the abundant grace, that's grace is God's help, might be through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. 
You know, when you have a problem, you know what it does? It humbles us. And when you have a problem that you can't solve, you have to say, oh, no, I need help. And you know what that causes you to do? Ask. And you know what that does? That causes God to give his grace to the humble. And when we ask God for help, we humble ourselves. But what makes us pray is helplessness and, and faith. <laughs> now, some of us, we don't pray because we, we, we got this. I do this all the time. We don't pray about stuff because we think we're, we got it. We do this. I mean, I can do this with my eyes closed. But the truth matters, I need God all the time. But helplessness, I'll tell you when you pray, when your loved one's in the hospital in the ER tonight and they can't do a bloom and think about it and they don't know what the problem is, you, you know what you're going to do? You're going to pray. Because now it crossed the threshold of your abilities. You got helpless real quick. I get helpless. And we'll, we'll talk to God. And then we talk to him and we get humble. And then what does God do? He gives us his help. That's what grace is. It's God's supernatural help. Did you save yourself? No, for by grace. We're saved by grace. God's help. And he helps us. And then when he helps us, we're thankful. And we thank him. We give the thanks to him. Well, when you get help and you're a mess and someone helps you, oh, you're thankful. And then it brings glory to God. You know, that's one of the reasons why we're still breathing today is to bring good to others and give glory to God. Helping others and honoring God. If, if you're not doing that and I'm not doing that in my life, I'm really wasting the breath God gave me. I'm supposed to give others a good opinion of the God that loves us and does so much for us. See, we find there's a reason for trials. Trials have a reason. They humble us, and we ask God for help. He gives us his help, and then we become very grateful people, and then we bring glory to him. Then I want you to notice real quickly the next thought real quickly. And, and of course, we're just talking about how to handle problems, laboring together with God through problems. Trust God and verbalize your faith in him. Focus on the person of Jesus. Consider Jesus who endured such contradiction of sinners. Boy, if you say, Pastor, I'm having it so bad. Did you ever have it bad as Jesus had it? No, no, I don't think we can compare with that, right? I think we can make it. When you consider what Jesus, he did nothing but good and got nothing but bad. We do nothing but bad, get a few things bad, and we get mad. <laughs> Something's wrong with us. Got stinking thinking. Focus on Jesus. Focus on his purposes and his power. Focus on the purposes and the reasons so that we can get his grace and thanksgiving and glory to God. Look at the next verse, if you would, please. And I think we can see it real quickly in verse number 16. For this cause, for which cause we do what? We don't quit. For our outward man perish, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. You know, when you have problems, one thing you don't want to do is quit. The old, the old poet said, when things go wrong, as they sometimes will. When the road you're trudging seems all uphill. When the funds are low and the debts are high and you want to smile, but you have to sigh. Huh. When care presses you down a bit. Sir, ma'am, rest if you must, but, but don't quit. Success may be failure when it seems like it's so far. 
So stick to the fight when your heart is hit. It's when things go wrong. You mustn't quit. He said, for this cause, we faint not. We don't quit. Because problems and trouble can put pressure on the internal, on the external, the outward man. But the inward man is renewed day by day. God's doing an inner work of grace. One thing all of us need is inner man strength. We need inner man strength to stay when we want to leave. We need man strength to study when we want to watch a, to- a football game. We need inner man strength to forgive when we want to hold a grudge. To give when we want to keep. Inner man strength to soul win. Inner man strength to disciple converts. You know, I think about listening to Brother Arbo's story, and I'm so glad Pastor Rice has having him do that. But you can hear the wonderful story about the the the. Um, the, the uh, nursing home. But how many years did he say he did that nursing home ministry? 22 years. When did they start giving him $500 a month? Year number 14. With nothing on his own gas, his own dime, his own time. 14 years times 52 weeks. Hundreds of times going to that nursing home. 48 funerals in one year. Doing what he had to do. I think that's called inner man strength, don't you think? Let's keep going. Well, that's sometimes all we can do is just put one step in front of the other. And keep going on. Though our outward man perish, our inward man is renewed day by day. And then he goes on to say that really all of our trials are temporary trials. The doctor said, I got cancer. If you're saved, it's temporary. Not to belittle that, but the truth of the matter is, uh, it's temporary. Every problem you have as a child of God is a temporary problem. Because one day God will wipe away all tears from her eyes. There will be no more night, no more sorrow, no more death, no more dying. Everything. He goes on to verse 17. Look at it with me. We'll conclude. For our light affliction was but for a what? Yeah. Just a short time. It worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, which are temporal, but the things which are not seen are what? Eternal. And dear friend, how we handle our problems has eternal impact and dividends. Impact on others and dividends for you. The Bible says, blessed is a man that endureth temptation or trials. Because when he is tried, he'll receive the crown of life, which the Lord giveth to everyone who loves him. Listen, God never wastes problems. He never wastes trials. He never wastes an attack. Look, it, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't Satan who thought about Job. That was, that was done by God. He said, you know, I think, I think Job can handle it. I'll help him. Have you considered my servant Job? I don't know about you, but when you have a problem, one thing you might want to think sometimes, you know, God entrusted me with this problem. He thinks I can do it. He, he's going to do it. And all this Job sin not, sin not nor charge God how? Like an idiot. No, he, did, he didn't do that. He, didn't, he, 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 he exercised wisdom. Faith in God. 
and we're still talking about Job. And if you don't know your Bible, Job. <laughs> we're still talking about him for all that God used him to do. And when you have a bad day, you can say, well, not as bad as Job. He trusted the Lord. God used him. And he has eternal impact on our own life today, many hundreds of years later. Hey, has trouble been your constant companion? Believe God. And tell him, I trust you, Lord. I don't understand. I got more questions than answers, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to take my care and make it prayer. I'm going to cast all my care upon you. Know you'll help me. I'm going to focus on Jesus. I'm going to trust your providence and your presence and, and your purposes and your power. I'm going to ask you for help. I'm not going to quit. I'm going to keep on doing what God wants me to do because my problems are temporary and they have an eternal impact. Let's pray together. Could you stand with me? If God has spoken to your heart, not kidding you, man. These guys are all over the world and God uses them. Uh, and uh, I'm just so thankful. Anywhere I can go, we can find Filipinos. I know I'll never starve to death if I'm near a Filipino. <laughs> they like food, and so do I, you know. And, you know. It's so wonderful. It's so good to see each of you, and thank you very much for the spirit that you bring to a meeting. The Filipinos have a very special spirit, and I love them and appreciate them, and of course, uh, it's a joy to see several here today as well. Well, we've talked about the First Timothy principles, and pastors give me some time to discuss those with you. As I said yesterday, I was sitting at a little breakfast uh, table with my wife thinking, what do pastors do? And the Lord directed me to read the book of First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus uh, back when I was 32 years old and just chosen to be a pastor. I found there that First Timothy has some themes, six chapters for chapter 1. And chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, each of them have a specific theme that, that, is, um, that I think anyone who serves Christ as a, a leader in the work of God, you're going to negotiate in those six silos every day of your ministry and, and things that, that I think the Apostle Paul knew that uh, Timothy would do. I've got a few things to give away real quickly. Pastor has given me... Uh, uh, some uh, gift, uh, two uh, cards. Let's see, twenty-five dollar. Good night in the morning. That's a great thing to have. Twenty-five dollars to Tim Horton here. Uh, two of those, and then I've got a book from Jeff uh, W. or William Jeffcoat, Tales from India, Truths from Heaven for uh, for those maybe from India. That's a, a little uh, thing that's been helpful to folks. And then another established in the faith book. Uh, by a brother, brother Piper. He has a large book back there as well. This is my Savior. Um, my, my Savior goes with me, and this is uh, from the Nichols family, some kids that uh, grew up in a pastor's home, and they're singing. Uh, that's that. And then I have a brand-new Bible, and uh, it's a leather-bound Bible. It's the 50th uh, anniversary of Bible, Literature, and Missionary Foundation. And it's a, it's a, I don't know if it's a Scofield. Yeah, it is a Scofield Bible but maybe something you would like to get there. So I'll give that away, and I'll ask a question. You raise your hand if you know the answer to that. What is the, uh, the, the verse that contains the reason that Paul wrote 1 Timothy? Yes, sir. Brother Connor? Yes, that's correct, 1 Timothy, that if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. What, what, what would you like today? 
All right, very good. Good. All right, thank you very much. All right, here's another question. Last night, Brother Tyler talked to us about the uh, John 3.16 story. He used three words. They all began with a C that referred to John 3.16. Can you tell me two of the words? All right, right back here. Yes, sir, Josiah. Conveyor was one. Was conversation another one there, Tyler? Help me out with that. Was that one of them? Conversation was not. Can you think of another one real quickly? Contacts. Very good. What do you want? You better believe it. You are a teenager, and everyone knows that. That's good. Good night. That's what got him to listen. He knew that might be a possibility. Tim Horton's very good. Very good. All right, here's another question. And uh, how about this one right here? Uh, doctrine determines? All right, James? Destiny. Very good. What do you want there? Tim Hortons? Oh, yeah, don't mess around with that. Another good teenager right there. All right, very good. Okay, let's see here, and then we've got the Bible, got uh, this thing right here. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give one more away, and I'll save the, save the other one for the men's meeting there. Linda's got a couple books upstairs that she may give away in a minute, too. Okay, um, all right, let's, uh, let's, talk, uh, let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, of, of the six chapters, I gave an overview yesterday. What is chapter five about? Yes, sir, Brother Isaac had his first hand up. Okay, so relationships and responsibilities. Very good. Which one did you want there, brother? The Bible's available too if you want that. Okay, very good. All right, very good. All right, let's go to 1 Timothy chapter number 3, verse number 15. And uh, let's, uh, let's read that together if we can, please. And who would open us in reading that verse one time? Ever, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Jacob, you got it in the back there? Go ahead and read it out loud for us, would you please, sir? Audist. Let's read it with Jacob one more time. Everyone together, ready? Verse number 15. But if... Very good. Brother Jason, would you mind reading verse 16? Listen, this is a verse about Jesus. And by the way, uh, he needs to be preeminent in every thought that we have he needs to be something that we think about that's why we have church why we come together is because of jesus not because of a pastor not because of a program not because of a property uh, but because of the person of jesus christ listen to this verse 16 go ahead That's our Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And boy, we ought to think about Jesus. By the way, pastors, we must make uh, Jesus an understandable and a preeminent part of each service. I, I have gone, I, I've been a pastor for 23 years, but there have been Sundays, I know, that 
uh, though I preached about Jesus, I sang victory in Jesus, I gave generously to the offering, Jesus really did not come on the radar of my mind. Not one time. It's terrible. And if he doesn't come to my mind, he doesn't usually come to the church's mind either. And we can sing songs, we can even preach, but not even, not even think about Christ. And if it's going to be thought about, uh, somebody's got to bring him up. And uh, try to remember that in your singing songs. I think it's good in the middle of a verse, just uh, in the middle between a verse and a chorus, maybe step up to the pulpit while the song leaders and just tap him and say, listen, we've got to think about this. Who are we singing about today? Have we thought about Jesus? He's the reason we showed up here. If you came for any other reason, you came way too low of a reason. You know, we need to look to Jesus. He's the reason we came. He's the one who saves us. This is his church. I'm not the head of the church. He is the head of the church. He ought to have, if, he, if there's a kingdom, there must be a king. If there's a king, he ought to have sovereignty over his subjects. And he ought to have, uh, he ought to have dictating what takes place in this service right now. Right. And let's think of Jesus. Maybe we ought to talk to Jesus. Uh, maybe we ought to talk about him with someone around us. We ought to talk for him to the world as we leave today. Make, make much of Jesus. And it's something that I, I'm convicted about because sometimes we just, he's not on the radar of our mind and therefore he's not, he'll not be in the service that we conduct. And it must be on purpose. I love that God put verse 16 after verse 15 uh, in this as he, he tells Timothy, Timothy, here's how you behave yourself. But look, remember the church is about Jesus. That in all things, Colossians chapter 1, he might have the preeminence dear lord please help us as we talk about these principles may they be a profitable time thank you for brother rice allowing me and suggesting that we talk about these matters today may they be profitable to our brothers and sisters uh, in this region of our world how blessed i am to be with them i pray that you would honor them thank you for the precious ladies that are here boy the role that a lady has in the work of the lord is so powerful and i thank you lord for bringing linda uh, to my life and then allowing us to be partners together uh, in your kingdom and raising children and, and ministering to others. Thank you for her, her uh, camaraderie and, and Lord love to me and thank you Lord for the, the precious girls that are in this room who love their husband and love the Lord equally and try to serve him and uh, raise children and be a lover and a friend and a kind uh, companion and I pray you'd bless them as well in this meeting today we ask this in jesus name amen first timothy principles he said that you know how to behave yourself quickly review chapter one has to do with keeping your doctrine sound what does sound mean what does sound mean what kind of inclination does it have hygiene which means keeping it clean without contamination without corruption without error and keep it simple stupid all right and that that really is don't get bored with the basics when someone comes up, I got a new truth, run from that clown, okay? Don't get around that guy, just, you, nothing's new. And don't be afraid to repeat the obvious. It's the obvious that most people have forgotten. <laughs> and the Bible tells Timothy, tells, uh, Paul tells Timothy, look, if you'll put the brethren in remembrance of these things, then you'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in words of faith and doctrine which thou hast fully attained. Don't be afraid to repeat the truth over and over again. Everybody wants a new independent fundamental Baptist. They want a new way. They want, they want new things. And I don't know that that's what God wants. 
God wants us just to keep repeating the old thing over and over again. And boy, you got a big Bible and there's plenty of things to learn in there that's not new but needs to be reiterated. But don't, don't get bored with the basics. Because doctrine determines destiny. It determines not only your destiny, but your decisions, your dedication, your direction, and your, your ultimate uh, destination. It does. And boy, people get sideways uh, doctrine. It leads to challenges. What does, uh, what does precede a shipwreck where other, there's a lot of collateral damage whenever there is doctrinal error? What precedes a shipwreck? A swerve. And one person makes a swerve. Many people, I was thinking about listening to Brother Florine talking about his accident that took place last March as, as uh, a plow truck was coming this way and he was on his side of the road. The plow truck was coming this way and someone decided to pass the plow truck in the, while they, and, and hit a head-on collision. That precious lady swerved and the collateral damage is still ongoing today. Uh, in that and boy that's the same way it is doctrinally you 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 get a little bit of a harebrained idea and you want to go off or you start listening to a podcast or start watching someone on youtube or you get out you just you're getting and oftentimes there are things that happen in the heart of a man heart of a woman disappointments disillusionment uh, somebody doesn't someone who believes something went went off the rails and did something wrong and they start thinking well maybe i'm what i'm believing is not right maybe i'll listen to here this guy or this guy over here or, or do that. And boy, oftentimes it gets, it gets a little bit uh, wacky. Keep your doctrine sound. And uh, teach the doctrine so you'll keep the doctrine. Tell a joke, remember a joke. Uh, keep getting the truth out and it'll become part of you. Uh, chapter 2 is making what a priority? Prayer and our walk with God a priority. And that's really important. Apostle Paul told the, the pastors, I mentioned yesterday, keep, take heed to thyself and make prayer an important part. Now, prayer is a private discipline, uh, but uh, it is an important discipline that we must make a, 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 a priority. I would that first of all, that supplication and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we can live a quiet and peaceable life with all godliness and honesty. And this is good and well-pleasing to God who would have all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. How many people does God want to be saved? How many go into the lake of fire, uh, uh, you know, with God's pleasure? No one. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all. Boy, I'm not sure how you can avoid those words, all, any. Uh, he, wants, he wants people to be saved. And that's one of the reasons that you and I need to pray is so that God would work in people's hearts. And I'm telling you, friend, uh, we, we, oh, we're willing to try to overshoot prayer and try to go to programs and methods and personalities and styles and all of that. There's things we can learn in every one of those arenas, but not at the expense of prayer. Prayer must be there. He says, I want you to pray. And he talks about that we have the intercessor. There's only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself to be a ransom for all, to be testified in due time. And uh, then he says, I, apostle, uh, I'm, I, Paul, am an apostle, and I'm a preacher, uh, a teacher of the Gentiles. Basically, uh, pastors reference this a couple times. 
Whenever Paul was dealing with the Jews, he was a preacher to the Jews because they were familiar with Abraham and Isaac and blood sacrifice. They, were, they knew the law. They knew the Ten Commandments that, that would be their schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. And they're familiar with that. But when he went into the, the heathen areas, he went into the Gentile areas, he had to go back to ground zero. He had to tell them about Adam and Eve. <laughs> He had to tell them about what, what the Bible is about. And he had to teach them things in preparation. Now, the gospel will work because God is the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So God's already lit up everybody, okay? He's already put them something inside of every human being regardless of their religious paradigm. But he said, I'm a teacher of the Gentiles. The Gentiles need to have a little bit more groundwork done. There needs to be some things that has to be explained in preparation. Listen, I don't care uh, if you're going to do any kind of algebra or fractions, you've got to first know how to add and subtract. And before you can do multiplication and division, you've got to know how to add and subtract. Before you do the fraction, you've got to know how to do multiply and divide. And there's, there's basics that you've got to get. And, and you're living in a world, a postmodern era in, in Canada and America, that you're going to have to sometimes, uh, I sat down and, and led a man to Christ who was a Hindu. And you just have to kind of back up and explain some stuff. And you have to teach the Gentile a little bit more than someone who is already familiar with, you know, a, maybe a Catholic or something of that nature who understands the virgin birth or believes the virgin birth, believes that Jesus is God. Well, not, that, that, that's a pretty good segue if they can understand the gospel. Just You, you already have a lot of understanding. And the same way with Apostle Paul. I'm a teacher of the Gentiles and then a preacher of the gospel. And then he said, I want men to pray everywhere. Uh, there's no place a man should not pray. And he said, I want you to pray, lifting up holy hands. Two things about that. Number one, hands need to, that has to do with our, our actions. Our actions need to be holy. If I regard iniquity in my, the Lord will not hear me. He said, you got you to get your life clear. The, the, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous. The key to effectual and fervent availing prayer is being right right with God and right with others. And certainly, uh, he says, that you're lifting up holy hands, holy hands that belong to God and that are image of, of, of who God is. Number two, surrender. Anywhere in the world, if you speak any language of the world, when you put your hands up, everybody gets it. They know that that person is surrendering. They're, they're, not, they're not coming after you. They're, they're, they're yielding their, their, their rights to your will. And he said, I want you men to pray everywhere with clean lives, Yielded hearts and hands and without wrath and without doubt. And those are issues. Men, the devil works real hard to get men angry, abusive, addictive, aloof, or absent altogether out of their, their family influence and their roles in leadership. But anger is one of the greatest things. You know, angry people don't listen good. They don't receive truth. That's why the Bible says in the context of James chapter 1, he says, look, when it comes to the word of God, you've got to receive it um, and, and be able to accept it. And, and to do that, you'll need to, to, to uh, be careful with your mouth and, uh, and, and uh, be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to what? Wrath. When you get an angry person, they don't hear good. If they are quiet, they're just quiet enough till you close your mouth so they can say what they want to say. 
They're not listening to what you're telling them. They're, they're, just, they're just angry and they don't receive. That's why men coming to church angry, angry men, angry women do not receive truth accurately and, 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 and easily. And so he says, same, as tw- same way when you pray, don't pray angry. Don't pray with doubt. And then he talks to the ladies and he says, ladies, when you pray, uh, remember your role. Remember that you, you need a covering. You need the covering of your husband. You need the covering of authority. And, and with modest apparel, modesty and submission and staying in your proverbial lane, ladies, makes, enhances your prayer life. You want to be rebellious. You want to have your own way. You want to kick back at your authorities in your life. You're going to struggle in your prayer life. And you look at the context there, and he says, you know, you shall be saved. He's not talking about eternal life. Matter of fact, if, you, if you're not careful in reading your King James Bible, every time you see the word saved, it doesn't mean saved from hell. Okay? Like, it, like the, the, the word of God that will save your souls is not talking in that context about salvation. It's talking about it'll save you from doing the way things the way you think, the way you feel, and the way you want to do things. It's one of the things a pastor does in a church. He is watching for your souls. When I get up in services, when your pastor gets up, your Sunday school kids get up, one of the main things that the job of the pastor is to shape our thinking, our feelings, and our desires to coincide with the Scriptures. Because the Scriptures contain the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, the happiness of believers. It's in the Scriptures. That we, that we learn that. So a pastor's watching for your souls. If he, if, when he preaches, he's trying to help us to think the way God thinks, to feel the way God feels, to want what God wants. He's shaping your souls. He's trying to watch for those things. And that's a blessed thing, to have that, to have that thing. So he tells us about that. He said, ladies, you, you're one of your keys. Men, holy hands, surrendered hearts, without wrath, without doubting. Ladies, Modest apparel, uh, modesty in your in your in your in your in your dress and your your conduct. He says, "I want you to necessarily be be submissive to your authorities, and stay in your lane of responsibility. Raise your children for the Lord. Find your satisfaction in being a precious wife, a precious mom, a humble servant of Christ, without without a, a without a rebellion." He said, "That's where God." will put you in a place where your prayers will be much more effective. And then chapter 3, Paul gives 17 qualifications for men that would, uh, are to be considered whenever they are becoming pastors. The next section talks about deacons and deacons' wives. There's no verses in the Bible for pastors' wives to my knowledge. There is verses on wives, but not a pastor's wife in particular. But there is verses on deacons' wives. And the reason that God speaks about that is something that Brother Brian Rice has a corner on. You can ask him about that later. I don't know the reason for that. So Brother Rice knows that already. He's theologically ready to answer that question. I'm just teasing. (laughs) Why God says here, now the deacons' wives, you must be like this. And doesn't say one word to the pastor's wife. Uh, and I can't wait to hear Brother Rice preach on that one day. That would be good. Sunday morning, Sunday morning. So come back Sunday morning and be a crowded house, I'm sure. Put that on Facebook. Nonetheless, uh, he says, now these are the kind of people, Timothy, whenever you are 
uh, in your place that these are people who would be qualified to pastor people, and these are people who are qualified to help assist their pastor. But they need these qualifications. And he says to the pastor, he said, look, if a man desire the office of a bishop, uh, some of you men, you're fighting it and quit fighting it. Your arms are too short to box with God. And you're wasting time. It, you, know, you know, when people say, I just fought it, I just fought it, I just fought it. Why? Why would you fight someone who loves you? It's like a little kid fighting his mom and dad to put his shoes on. Why would you do that? He's helping you. Put your coat on. Leading you through life. Why would you fight, pull away from your mom and dad in a busy uh, uh, setting? No, you ought you to run to him. And let him, when you serve God, you can always expect more than you can expect. And he lives his best to those who leave the choice up to him. Not everyone is called to be in full-time Christian uh, vocational service. Now, all of us are called to be full-time Christians. But everybody ought to struggle with the possibility that God wants you to serve him. And if he wants you to, quit fighting him, run to him. And say, Lord, whatever you want for me, I, I want to do that. And don't, don't spend your life spending years and years fighting the call of God when it's on you. That's something you want to do. He said, but it's going to start with an itch. If a man desire the office of a bishop. And not everyone has a desire or supposed to be. I think there needs to be a desire. I think there also ought to be some competence. Okay? Somebody needs to know what they're doing. You need to learn some things. Be prepared. I think there also ought to be some confirmation. Uh, I, I think it's helpful whenever, uh, when someone has is, is been, is been called to serve the Lord, surrender to the Lord, that someone else agrees with God on that situation. And you'll find that. Someone will say, you know, I think, I remember years ago when I never thought I'd be a pastor, but I, I, I spoke one time, and about five people came to me and said, John, I could see you pastoring the church one day. I said, oh, my goodness, you're kidding me. Bumped up, you know, oh, that was a good message. Pastor, you know how to communicate the word of God. That was, I could see you being a pastor. I'd say, would you shut up? <laughs> uh, you know, just, but you know that confirmation that, that some, someone, God sent someone to say, hey, I think this, is, I could see this. I could see God using you in this way. Uh, and then uh, it, the ministry is, is a desired work. It's hard work. If you do it right, I, I just don't think it's, it's not a walk in the park. It's just, it's just going to be hard work. Uh, uh, Brother Dan talked about his life first being 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the... I think some people don't want to do ministry because of a four-letter word, work. <laughs> it's work. It's work to win people, to disciple people, to direct people to counsel their problems, to work through the satanic opposition, to work through the inadequacies and the financial challenges and, and the difficult, it's just work. It, it is work. It, it's a desired work. It's hard work. But it's rewarded work. And uh, it's a good work. It's a work that God would honor you with. And he said, now, Timothy, when you're working with people, these are the people that can be good pastors these are some guys and girls who would be good at helping their pastor evaluate them first and if they if they do it that'll be great but the thing that every pastor and every uh those who help their pastor have in common is that someone led them to christ 
and someone discipled them to some level of spiritual maturity. And, and that is where I think chapter 3 is about spiritual reproduction. God gets his future pastors and workers from people who have been saved and discipled. I can't choose anyone to be a pastor. I was discipling a man. He was an atheist. His girlfriend was an atheist. They were sitting in the park. Someone gave them a tract. They began to come to church. After about the sixth week he was there, I met him a couple of times. I saw people try to witness to him, and he wasn't ready. And about the sixth time he came, he came up to me, and after I visited with the visitors, he said, you know, Pastor Wilkerson, I just got to tell you something. He said, I'm an atheist. I don't believe like you believe. We've been invited to this church. been coming for a few weeks. He said, when I was a teenager, I used to go to churches. And I remember one church in particular I went because I wanted to be a drummer in the band. And uh, the pastor, he dressed down. And you could tell when it was his turn to talk that he was very careful with his words. He didn't want to offend anyone. He was just very one to make everything real pliable and pat us on the head. He said, I don't think you're doing that at all. He said, you don't, you don't really care. You, you offend people with regularity. He said, you just like a really, you like just take that book and says whatever it says. You don't like, you, 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 don't, you don't care about my feelings. He said, I really admire that. He said, I, I don't think you're trying to impress us. And I, I've never felt more loved in a room than I do in this room except for my mother's house. He said, I don't know what you're feeding these people, what kind of pills, happy pills everybody's getting here, but he said, there's a lot of love in this room. And he said, I just, I don't know why, I just wanted to tell you that. I said, well, Nick, thank you very much. Appreciate you telling me that. I'm honest. I've got people, served, you know, been saved for 30 years who criticize me for offending them on a regular basis. He said, and I've got an atheist telling me he, he thinks it's pretty cool that I offend people. <laughs> But uh, nonetheless, I said, Nick, uh, how about you and Jaden? Once you come over to our house to eat next week after church, are you going to be in town? He said, yeah. He said, we'd do that. I think so. And they came, and Linda made a beautiful meal, and we had several people there. And, and uh, then they, we finished eating. I said, could we just talk a little bit? And they said, sure. I said, Nick, uh, you and, you and Jaden. Jaden was Chinese, and her parents taught at the university and atheist and and her and her sister, her, her sister's now um, converted to Islam and uh, just gotten away from that. And she retains the atheist belief. But, but, uh, but, but Nick, he, his parents are attorneys, and he's been through. His mother came to know the Lord, but he's just not sure about everything and has his own opinions. But nonetheless, I, I said, look, could I just show you the Word of God? Can I just show you what the Bible says? And I remember going through the gospel with them on my couch and they sat on the couch, and I sat in the chair beside it and went through the gospel. And I said, have you heard that before? He goes, yeah, our first Sunday here, someone walked me through that and her through that. And she looked up at him, and she said, Nick, when I heard that the first time, I said, yeah, yeah, you know, heaven, hell, you know, Jesus died. I mean, who believes that? He goes, you know, Nick, I, I don't really feel the same way right now. I feel like that, you know, what Pastor just said, it might be true. And she, he looked at her and said, I, I feel the same way. I said, well, would you, would you consider accepting Jesus? Oh, no, no, we're not ready to do that. And she said, no, probably not. I said, well, okay, let's pray together. I prayed with them uh, and asked the Lord to help them and didn't pray. By the way, I, I don't know about you, but I, I don't think it's a good idea to use your prayer to talk to somebody else. I, I don't know about you. I think when we pray, we already talk to God, don't you think? Yeah. 
and uh, if and and not try to talk to somebody else in my prayer to God, trying to get them to be convicted. Uh, just something about that just doesn't rub me well, and I probably have done it before, but I don't think it's a good idea. But I just prayed for them, and when I got done, and he said, "You know, Pastor, um, I don't I don't really want to get up off your couch." I said, "Well." Like they say to the drunks at 2 o'clock in the morning, you, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. And I just took it and said, because I'm just not sure I wanted to get up. And I said, well, what do you want to do? He said, you know, is the church open? I said, no, it's locked, but I have the keys. He said, would you mind meeting us down at the church? I said, sure, I'll meet you at the parking lot. I went down there, met him at the church, unlocked the door, they came in. She went off to the restroom and, we were standing in the foyer there at the church, and of course it's a fairly large facility, and there was nobody there but us. And he said, "Pastor, I feel like I got ten thousand pounds on my chest." And he goes, "I, I don't know what I feel. I feel like real pressure." And I said, "Well, you know, it's, it's the Lord. He's trying to draw your heart to His Son Jesus." And they, and um, and anyway, I saw Jaden come. She walked out from the restroom and. I said, is there anything I can help you with? He said, can we go down in the front? And I said, yeah, we can go down the front. And we have a middle aisle. So we came down the front, and they stood there. And he stood there, and she sat, she sat over there. And I sat over here on the middle aisle, and he stood in the middle. And he looked at the cross. There was a cross there, and he stood at the cross. And he just plopped to his knees. And he said, I need to be saved, Pastor. Can you help me? And I said, well, do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe? And he said, I said, you want me to help you pray? He said, yeah, would you? And he prayed and asked the Lord to save him. And it was a beautiful thing, just through tears. And, and then she got up, and she said, I want to do it too. And he said, oh, Jaden, I'm caught up in all this. I'm so sorry. I, I don't want to put any pressure on you. I, I, I know what we were, and I just I don't want to put any pressure. She goes, no, no, there's no pressure. And she walked from there up to the altar, and she knelt right there and and. Uh, it was quiet, and I said, well, Jaden, do you, you need any help? She goes, no, I know what to do. And she began to cry out to the Lord and ask the Lord to save her. And it was a beautiful, beautiful Amen. thing to see them get saved. And so thankful that somebody, somebody loved them enough to give them a gospel tract, invite them to church. And, but uh, I've sensed that they got engaged a few weeks later right in the front of the church on a Sunday morning, and then they went and got back. He wanted to get engaged in the baptistry. I said, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> Her atheist parents were there when, they, when she got baptized, and his parents were there when they got baptized, but they got engaged there, and then we got in the baptistry, and they baptized them, and, and then they said, Pastor, can you do our wedding? And I did their wedding, and probably 135 unsaved people were at their wedding. And uh, got to hear the gospel of Christ. I told the story similar to what I told you, not quite as elaborate, but told them about how to accept the Lord. And one day I was discipling, uh, discipling Nick and going through discipleship lessons. And he says, you know, Pastor, this is the craziest thing. But sometimes when you're teaching me something inside of me, this is weird. I don't even know what to do with it. But it's like, Nick, you could do this one day with somebody. He said, this is a weird, isn't it? Isn't that a weird thing to say? I see you up in the pulpit, and I'm thinking, something inside me says, you know what, you could probably do that one day, Nick. <laughs> he said, what do I do with those emotions? I said, run with them. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, God's doing the work. 
but they have to be saved. I've decided I've te- I've texted him twice since I've been here in Canada, and this is I've known him now. I said he did I did his wedding probably in May or June of last year, so it's been a, been a, been a while since they got saved. And but you know just seeing their progress come, and I'm seeing it's from saved and discipled people, spiritual reproduction, that we get other pastors and other people to help their pastor. Let's talk about chapter four real quickly, and this is the walk of the godly servant and. And uh, chapter 4 is a great chapter, and the Spirit speaketh expressly to someone apart from the faith. And there's a fourfold digression you'll see there. They start listening to seductive spirits. They start accepting doctrines of devils. They start speaking lies and hypocrisy. I feel so free now. I have no chains. I can, I, I just, uh, I don't have any of these rules. I just, me and God are like this while they have a cocktail in their hand, you know. And when they're do, watching things and doing things and dressed immodestly, all of a sudden now God and them are just so close. Um, it's a lie. It's a hypocritical lie. And then they have their, their conscience is seared with a hot iron. Nothing convicts them. What used to really bring conviction, the water of the word would sink through the pores of their conscience. Now it doesn't. Now whenever they hear the word of God, it just rolls off like a water off a duck's back. It, it, their, their conscience has been seared where their pores are all seared and now when the word of God is preached when the things of God are done whenever they see something they shouldn't see or do something they shouldn't do or go someplace shouldn't go they don't have any conviction about it because their conscience is yours to keep if your conscience is not clear that's your fault it it ought to be clear before God and clear before others but then he says to Timothy Timothy I want you to let no man despise your youth but be thou and example and this is really important for a child of God but especially a leader because your sermons whisper but your life shouts can you say that with me your sermons whisper but your life one more time your sermons your life is a lot louder than your preaching a lot louder than your lesson and if people don't trust you they will not trust what you tell them and you're always on you live in a glass house, and it's one of the assets that you have to, to affect people's lives. Well, people say, I don't want to live in a glass house. I don't want everybody to have to know everything. Listen, that's how. You can, make a, you can influence from afar, but you make an impact in people's lives up close. And years ago, there was a little bit of a crazy thought that, you know, is uh, you've got to have a, an element of mystique. And I think it's a mystique mistake. I think that you don't need mystique. You need to be real all the time. You need to be as accessible as God will let you be. You need to be able to be one-on-one with people, and they need to see it. More is caught than taught. And people won't remember your message two weeks ago. You don't even remember it. I don't remember what I ate for breakfast two weeks ago either on a Tuesday morning, but now it's a part of me. That's why I stand here in front of you. And people don't remember your message, but they remember you. They watch how you take care of your your possessions. They watch how you love your wife. They watch how you handle opposition. They watch how you handle someone who is who's coming at you. They're, you're always on. He says, you've got to be a good example, Timothy, in word, how you speak, in conversation, how you conduct yourself, in faith, what you believe, in charity, in purity. In, in, in these matters, you're going to have to make sure that you're a good example. And uh, chapter 4 is about being a good testimony. 
And I think many people have, have uh, they've got the call of God upon their life. And they might even be doctrinally sound, but their disposition and their conduct and the way they do things is turns people off. Uh, because their life doesn't match their lips. The life doesn't match the doctrines of the scriptures. And they limit their ability. Chapter 5 is relationships and responsibility. Relationships and responsibility. In chapter 5, you'll see that the Apostle Paul will tell him, treat the older men like your dad, and, and the older women like your mom, and the younger women like your sister with all purity, and the younger men. And you talk about you learn a lot of things in a, in a home that translate into the church home and the church house. And then he talks about uh, several things. I, I'll give them to you real quick if you, some of you are taking notes. But there's a couple things that come to my mind when I think about chapter 5. One is uh, we respect our co-laborers. We learn how to, our responsibility, relationships and, and responsibilities, you respect the people you're serving with. You don't have to agree with everybody, but you respect them. Okay? And you have to be careful about that. Number two, you, you want to requite your aging family members. It's as biblical responsibility as it is preaching to take care of your elderly family members when they need your help. Uh, brother brother Miss Sherry would love to be here today. Crumball would love to be here, but she's got a mother who needs her attention at this time. There are other people that are not here, and you know that is a biblical responsibility. If a man doesn't care for his own aging family members, he's denied the faith and is worse than an atheist. That's what God said. Now, he's not talking about working on Sunday so you can, I want to take care of my kids. Your kids aren't going to starve to death. Come on. That's a lame excuse, and that's a bad way to interpret that verse. That verse is talking about your aging family members. Take care of them. Sit down and plan. What are we going to do? I remember walking around the lake when Linda was my girlfriend and, and my fiance, and I told her, I said, I know, I don't know what our lives are going to be like, but if my mom or my dad ever need our help, we're going to be first in line to offer it. If your mom and dad ever need our help, we'll be first in line to offer it. Because I believe that's where true piety is shown. Don't run away from that, you know. And I've seen people, sometimes they just, I don't, I don't know. I, I, thought they were, I thought they had more understanding of the scriptures than to let their mom and dad drool on themselves by themselves in the corner of a rest home or a nursing home when they could give time to them and love them and help them. They've had to put their old life on breaks. And pause to do something. But that is a biblical responsibility. And right there in that passage of Scripture, we see that. We're supposed to respect our co-laborers. We're supposed to requite our aging family members. In this passage of Scripture, we're supposed to, to remind ladies of their spiritual qualities. Chapter 5, verses 5 through 6 and 9 through 10. And by the way, these are not ladies who, these are ladies who become widows, but aren't widows yet. And by the way, the ladies in, in, the, in this Bible time, there was no assistance ex apart from your own family in the church. There was no government help that would send you a pension. And so he said to the girls, listen, before you ever become a widow, you might want to have these qualities, house strangers, exercise hospitality, minister, be a good testimony, because one day you may need the assistance of a church family and you need to qualify <laughs> for that. And he's telling them how to do that. 
The next thing in this passage of Scripture is refuse to give excessive help to young widows. I won't go there, but that's very biblical. You can see it in verses 11 through 15. Reverence and compensate worthy spiritual leaders. The Bible says the man who labors in word and doctrine ought to be worthy of double honor. And friends, I, I just say this to you. I, I don't know how everybody else is, but he just says, look, if your pastor is a faithful pastor, do your best to compensate him in a way that finances aren't his first thought for his own personal thing. He doesn't have to be wealthy, but the church ought to say, what can we do to relieve pastor's mind of, of basic financial needs so he can serve God effectively? And I think he said, if they labor in word and doctrine, well, don't muzzle the ox that grinds out the corn. Take care of your spiritual leaders. That's a biblical responsibility, relationships and responsibilities. Now, I don't know what this is like to be a pastor to teach on this. It's a little awkward sometimes, but you can teach what the Bible says, and, and God will ring the people's bell with their mindset as long as you not have an ulterior motive in mind. Teach them what the Bible says. That's as clear as... As the you know, Apostle Paul said, look, those that, li- that preach the gospel ought live of the gospel. And I'm not saying against vol- voc- bivocational. That, that is a very normal thing in many times of ministries. But sometimes uh, it is that way. I've got a young man that, um, that uh, he had a, a construction business. He knows how to do that. But God now has a church that needed a pastor. They called him. And what they asked him to come, and they, they had enough money that they could at least sponsor him for a year with the reserve they had. And they said, well, we're a little bit nervous about that. And so they said, we'll give him this much. And I said, well, you know what? If you could give him a little bit more, he wouldn't have to go get a job. He could live simply and, and be your pastor, and more people would get saved and discipled. And, uh, and I said, he's coming to you by faith. Why don't you exercise some faith? And talk to the people there and see if you can exercise some faith, too, to take care of him so that he can take care of this and his three little children to do that. And uh, in, in the church said yes, and then they, when he got there, they said no. <laughs> and uh, But I, I want to try to help them. And, but he's, he's already won in, in, in a six weeks of being there. He's won 29 people to Christ, baptized 11 people. And now some, some folks are struggling a little bit with the, all these new people coming in. But uh, I'm trying, like all get out, to try to keep him from going and getting a secular job because that will keep him somewhat from doing that. But it may be God's will for him to do it, and sometimes people make decisions. That's why you want to live simply so that you can do what you can. And if you have, you know, the Bible says whenever you're, you're put before a king, uh, put a knife to your throat if you're a man given to appetite. If you've got high expectations financially, you go into the ministry, uh, it's going to cripple you from being able to effectively live and live simply so that you can do that. Now, girls, you have to, you have to get that and, and eat the whole burrito with the whole thought of that. You can't just say, well, I've got to have this and this and this. No, if I've got to have whatever God wants me to do. And many of you girls are great examples of that. But you have to be careful uh, because ministry, uh, you're, you're not trying to keep up with the Joneses. You didn't get in this for finances, and God is a very good God, and can take care of you and can give through you what he'll not give to you. Uh, he can do the miraculous things. We've heard Brother Arbo and Miss Reed talk about that, and I love that. I could tell you stories about how God, I took a pay cut from being a school administrator to being a pastor of a church. 
and coming down to a church where we weren't sure we were going to even keep the doors open. But God knew how to do it. But I couldn't have done that had I had major debt. I could not have done that had I not lived simply. I couldn't even made that. I, I would have to say, you know, I can't be your pastor. But uh, God put together some things. And, you know, those are things we have to learn. And that leads me to the chapter 6. I'm, I'm, I, am, I, am I done now? Chapter 6, real quickly. And that is, uh, the whole chapter is about financial management. Financial management. Uh, I didn't tell you the other thoughts on that situation, but you've got to reject unsubstantiated accusations against a pastor when it's not with more than, than uh, two witnesses. Okay, you know that already. And those that sin, you've got to fess up. If you do something wrong, it's a wonderful thing to be a man of God and to be representing of Christ. If you do something wrong, you need to be able to humble yourself and take the reproof that comes with that. And then be careful to... Not to put people into the ministry just because you're a that a boy or pat them on the back. And there needs to be some uh, sobriety before ordaining someone. And you have to monitor your relationships your lifetime. Just understand, not everybody that loves God with you today will be the same way in 10 years. There'll be some, there'll be some, some adjustments of your friendship. We're all going to heaven. If they're saved and I'm saved, we're going to heaven. But you've got to walk together to be Agree. You've got to agree to walk together. And there's some folks that their sin comes up early on. Some their sins follow after. And you'll have to adjust your relationship very much. To me, one of the biggest gut punches in my Christianity and as a leader is to watch people um, drift. And I can't stop the drift. They, I can just tell the direction determines their destiny. And there's just, there's just some things. And, and I, I don't want to be critical of them. To their own master, they have to stand or fall. But I also want to, I, uh, you know, I think I heard Miss Reed say, some people change, we've just chose not to. Amen. Yeah. Some people want to change, we, we just chose we don't want to change. We want to try to stay true to the word of God. And I hope you'll do that. Amen. And if you've got change on your mind, I hope you'll reconsider and make sure you stay right with the Lord. Brother Ben just got offended right now. Let's pray for him, <laughs> would you? He went out from us because he was not of us. <laughs> No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Benjamin got saved one year ago, today or yesterday in this service. We thank God for his great testimony. He's a little out of control, but we like him that way. So. <laughs> Chapter number six speaks of financial management. And there's four major principles I see you may be able to find a lot more. But one is to work diligently. Whether you work for an unsaved person or a saved person versus one to work hard. Laziness is a scourge of the ministry. Don't be a lazy servant of Christ. All of us have some element of taking the easy way, not having to do it the hard way. You know, what, you know, what do I deserve today? Th those are in me, and they're probably in you too. Maybe not as much in you as it is in me. But the truth of the matter is, working diligently, hardworking people inject great strength into the work of God. Lazy people sap the strength and the inertia out of things. And sometimes pastors are lazy. And uh, you, you have to manage your time. You have to evaluate, what am I doing? What am I doing with my time? How am I going to use this day? Lord, how do you want me to do that? It takes, it takes work to study. It takes work to soul win. It takes work to disciple convert. It takes work to organize a service. And you say, well, I'm just not an organized person. That's because it takes work to organize. 
to prepare for something, to prepare for a wedding, to prepare for a funeral. You can just go flippantly in there. I've done this a thousand times. I know what I'm doing. Or you can prepare for that individual situation. It takes work to have a conference. To do what we're doing here uh, is difficult. It's challenging. For, for a lot of people to have a good time, a few people have to labor more abundantly. Yeah. And, and it takes diligence. And, and we, gotta, we need hardworking people. And I want to be a hardworking person. I wanna be a, I, I, if there's anything else I'd like to my dad, my kids, I want to say, Dad, Dad wasn't a lazy guy. I want our people to think. And I don't work for this reason. I work because of Christ. But he worked. He said, I must work the works of him who sent me. He said to his disciples, my father works and I work. He was busy. Study his day. You'll find out that he, it wasn't all about him. He was trying to get some things. He knew the night was coming when no man can work. And he knew that he had, he had only a small window of time. Brother Arbo, as old as he is. <laughs> he's a hard-working person. Yeah. He's told us he may be the oldest person in the room. We don't want to debate that. We're going <laughs> to take it on his word. But the truth of the matter is, uh, he cannot do everything he used to do with the same energy. But he can do it with urgency. Okay, and the truth of the matter is, remember now your creator in the days of youth. You younger people, I hope that you'll not take the, the path of least resistance. But you'll work diligently. It's a financial principle. God blesses hard. He leans toward a hard-working servant. I think he leans away from a lazy. He says, thou, thou slothful, stir. The wicked and slothful. Puts them in the same, in the same, uh, same little uh, condemnation. Don't be lazy. He said, he said, Timothy, teach the people to work diligently. It's a key to financial success. Number two, associate carefully. Look at chapter 6 if we can. Verse number 3, after he tells them to work hard, he says, verse number 3, chapter 6, If any man teach otherwise, let consent not to the wholesome words of the words of the Lord Jesus. This is I heard from Jesus, work hard. And to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is what? Proud. Knoweth nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words. People that are lazy usually run their mouth. And they ask dumb questions. If you've ever worked in the secular realm, you'll always find someone standing around the water cooler holding the tiles down. And saying, you don't get paid enough here, I tell you what. I haven't gotten a raise in a while. And they just complain about, about how, how bad it is to be them. When, when, and why, by the way, when you find that clown that asks the doting questions. How much are you going to pay? When's the last time you got a raise? When you ask that, you see that clown? You know what the Bible tells you to do with him? withdraw thyself get away so he can just talk to himself and complain within his own being get away from that clown anybody who has an in you know a get rich quick theme get rich scheme that wants to introduce you to just just kind of just say thank you very much god bless you we'll see you later yeah. you know get away from that person be diligent and associate carefully because your associations will affect your financial thinking you hang around wealthier people and you start getting the same appetites and, and you can't go to Tim Hortons anymore. You have to go to some, some fancy, fancy place like, like this place we're getting the coffee from right now. I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah, you can't. 
you can't, uh, you can't, you can't just, you, you get, you've gotten used to uh, an echelon of things. He said, uh, be careful because your associations will affect your financial management. The podcast, the, 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 the blogs, the things that you start, you start looking at that. You start feeding, following somebody on social media and they just get, everything is about money. It's about this, it's about that. I've got pastor friends and I love every pastor friend I have, but they're just some pastor friends. They're just, we're just not good together. I'm happy for them, but it seems like they always want to talk about the second home they got, the new toy they got, the new car they got, the new things, new things. And after a while, I just feel like, you know what, I, everything has been about material stuff the whole time I talk with them, and I just don't know that that's where my head needs to go. We're not talking about soul winning, sermons, the scriptures. We're just talking about stuff. And I, I just, I'm not going to be unkind, but I, I got I to move because... Because it was Paul that said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, be not deceived, don't kid yourself. Evil communications corrupt the way you live. It, it, it messes with you. And you can't lay with dogs without getting some fleas. He that walketh with wise men shall be, a companion of fools shall be. Yeah, I've got to be careful about that. Two thoughts real quickly to conclude, and that is number three is to live contentedly. Work diligently. Associate carefully, live contentedly. When's enough enough? And am I happy? Has God given me everything I need to be happy for? You know, James 5 tells us, man, weep and howl, you rich man, <laughs> for the misery is going to come to you. When? When the Lord comes. And he's going to pull out your closet full of clothes that you should have given away. Instead, you pick them up and they're moth-eaten because they've been in your closet way too long. You just kept them when you could have distributed them to someone else. We got so many clothes in our closet, and we're going looking at stores all the time, getting more. <laughs> Trying to put them in there again. He said, You should have put them in. You should have put them. Your, your gold is in a bag, and it's turned green under your watch. So you kept it for 20 years. And all it is just turned green when you could have used it for the kingdom of God's sake. They're going to be, God's going to say, bring, bring out the evidence. Look at the clothes. You had all those? You could have you shared those with the kingdom of God or someone who needed them? Your gold and silver, let's open those out. And they're all green. Oh, you were successful. You lived your whole life and you kept them for 30 years. You saved up so much. You didn't know when enough was enough. When I was prompting you to give, you know you wanted to keep it. Well, let's bring all those evidence out. Learn to live contentedly. And then learn to give generously. Give generously. Let's look at the last part of the verse. And Pastor, thank you for the extra time, and I'm sorry to take it. Verse 17. Once again, Timothy is challenged by Paul. He's telling him, verse number, verse number 11, but thou, O man of God, the only time you find O man of God in the New Testament is Paul talking to a young Timothy. Isn't that interesting? He said, but you, you man of God, don't get caught up in the, in the love of money. That's and chasing riches. No, no, don't do that. You follow after faith, after righteousness. You flee these things. You follow after that. You fight the good fight of faith. And at the conclusion, verse 17, he says, charge them that are what? In this world. That's everybody in this room. You say, Pastor, I've never been called rich. You just got called rich. We all have more than we need. Okay, we, 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 we have more than we need. That's a rich person in the Bible. Someone who has more. That's not the Bill Gates. It's not the Warren Buffetts. That's you. That's me. 
He said, charge the people that have more than they need in this world. Why? He says, I, I want you to charge them. that They be not high-minded. Don't, don't be proud. Nor trust in what? Yeah, one thing about riches, every day the stock market, they tell you what it is every day all through the day. You can see up and down. That's how money is. It's up and down. Don't, don't put that. It's uncertain. Jesus is the same <laughs> yesterday, today, forever. I am the Lord. I change not. Uncertain riches, but trust in the living God who, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. That ye do good, that you be rich in good works, ready to distribute or give away, invest, willing to communicate, exchange uh, with God's people, laying up in store for themselves. By the way, when, when Jesus said that, he said the same thing. Lay up for yourselves. When you give. See, we, we've thought, if I give, I'll never see it again. That's, what you're, that's all you're going to see again. You've got two treasuries, one here and one in heaven. And when you give to the Lord, it instantly becomes in, uh, eternal in nature. And that goes into heaven's bank. He said, lay up for yourselves treasures. Lay up for themselves unto life eternal. He challenges us to give generously. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of just the opportunity to be an extension of